Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Just Effin' Send It podcast. I have my good friend, Ted Hager. Uh, Ted, welcome to the podcast, sir. Thanks, David. Like being here. Yeah, so Ted is from the great state of Iowa. So he flew in today and picked him up at the airport. Uh, his flight got delayed a little bit. Um, and on what y'all had because of ice and snow and shit on your... Woke up, woke up this morning in Des Moines, nine degrees, and a fresh five inches of snow on the ground. Well, fuck that. It's 75 here right now. Yeah, I enjoyed my t-shirt today down here. That was nice. Yeah, it's it's definitely nice. So I am drinking a, a delicious uh, Sierra Nevada beverage, and he is drinking a bottle of my Angel's Envy whiskey that I've never even opened because I'm not a whiskey drinker. It just, I think it was a gift. It was a, it was a gift. We had a stock the bar party. When we moved in here, and I, I just I don't drink whiskey, so it's been sitting there looking pretty. And people who drink whiskey, are like, dude, that's a good whiskey. I'm like, fucking awesome. That's- a lot of people are gonna think this is a good whiskey because it's pretty flat. There isn't a lot of flavor profile to it. It's done. In, it's finished in a port port cask, but there's not a lot of bite. There's not a lot of finish at the end of it. So I can understand why a lot of people who don't drink a lot of whiskey would think this is really good whiskey. Ah, so it's like newbie whiskey. Yeah. Oh, okay. Maybe that's what I need. Which in order to make whiskey and make it this smooth, you have to make it really well, right? Yeah. You know, but some of the old time guys that like to drink whiskey, like the the harder, the bitey stuff that kind of go into a bold red wine, right? Right, yeah. Compared to... I I like that. I'm I'm a big fan of of a good dry, like it can't be dry enough, like a good, nice, heavy bodied... But you don't like whiskey. Don't. Like you're weird. I don't know, man. Maybe, maybe it was my first my first liquor drink ever was a shot of Southern Comfort, and I didn't love that. My next one was Wild Turkey. I didn't know what the fuck either one of them were. I didn't like that either. Maybe it's just like taking me back to the times I first had them when I was younger and. I couldn't appreciate, even if it was like the best whiskey on the planet at 16 years old, I don't or 15, however old I was, I don't think anybody's going to really enjoy a whiskey at 15. Like, mmm, I taste the smoke and the bear. No, no one's going to know that shit. This will get drunk and throw up, you know. So I'm thinking, I was saying, man, it's hot as shit in here. We got the window cracked because, isn't it nice being hot it is. in February? You know, it's... Absolutely. I'm not all bundled up. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's... Relaxing. Well, you're gonna be bundled. Well, we're gonna be. Well, I'm gonna be bundled up tomorrow. So we, we're shooting the match together. So he's he Ted's flown in to he he hit me up. Uh, we said 20, 2020, uh, May of twenty twenty is about the first time I emailed you. Yeah. So when did you ask me about doing the match show? Was that last year? Yeah, that was just November. Okay, November last year. Yeah. All right, November last year. I couldn't remember. Um, he wanted to do a match trade. And I think I mentioned it before. He he wanted to come here, and I host him here, and we shoot at either Paul's for at Frontline Defense or at Pig River. But Pig River didn't really work for him. He could have made it work. Not Pig River. Yes, Pig River, the hand match. But I can't go because it's the weekend before the Big Rock Marlin Tournament. Um, but uh, so it kind of worked out pretty good to come to this match. I was like, man, you can come. To, I'm, I'm shooting it, but it isn't the greatest weather, you know, for a match or whatever. But I guess 
what we're going to be in tomorrow is going to be a far cry from what you'd be shooting in a match in Des Moines, Iowa this weekend if you were there. Right. It'd be a lot warmer down here. Yeah. So tomorrow we're going to have pretty good weather. It's going to be a little bit chilly. I think there's like a high of like 47 or something, mid-40s. Uh, Sunday's going to be the bitch because it's going to be like 50 or 51, but basically rain all day. So like 50s and rain, no good. I'd rather have colder. I'd rather have snow. Like I'll take snow. Um, I don't want rain and cold. I don't like rain in the summertime, but I much prefer it in the summertime. The most miserable I think I've ever been was at a match at Frontline. It was about this time of year. 40 degrees was a high and pissing rain all day. I don't think I've ever been that just chilled to the bone. That's not comfortable. It's not. Yeah, but the weather this weekend, all I'm hearing is Advantage 10. Coming out of 9 degrees and... 40, 47 tomorrow is going to be me in a sweatshirt. Yeah. And all these North Carolina fellows are going to be wearing parkas. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll have... Here's what I'll have on tomorrow. I'll have on my first light um, base layer thermal shirt. A regular t-shirt on top of it. Short sleeve over the long sleeve, whatever. Then my first light mid layer, which is a merino wool. Uh, kind of like a, a inch high, not a turtleneck, but just like a raised collar about an inch. And then it will be my first light puffy sweater. It's a hood. I got a hood. And it, I shot. I, I wore this exact shit last weekend at the one day match in Virginia because it was cold as fuck in the morning. Like it was it was like 28 and blowing. Wind was howling. Um, and I was like, I took my jacket off. Like after the first stage, I was fucking sweating. I was like, I gotta get this shit off. So I took my jacket off. I didn't put it on the rest of the day. And it, it, it warmed up pretty quick, but it got up to what? Mid forties is the high as it got, but 28 mile an hour wind. Um, so I think I'll be good with what I got. In my, oh, in Long John Merino wool on my, under my britches. Um, you will be in like shorts and a hoodie. <laughs> pretty much you won't be Sunday because that cold at 50 degrees and rain that sucks for anybody and you add water to it it fucking sucks I'll be about the same thing you are just maybe one or two less layers in there yeah the same thing long you know long long john top t-shirt long john top sweatshirt on top of that kind of thing and, and, a, and a pretty thin coat if I'm wearing a coat so. yeah and there's my my rain gear my kuyu for Sunday that's like literally I, I in summertime that stays in my pack. I don't care if it's calling for a hundred degrees and sunshine, because in North Carolina you never fucking know when a, just a random ass storm. And our weathermen are just the worst on the planet. So that stays in my pack, and so I'm never caught without rain gear. Everyone should always bring rain gear, because if everybody brings rain gear, it's never gonna rain. Right. But you get one or two dudes that are like, I didn't bring your rain gear, you know it's going to rain. Yeah, and he's going to be miserable, and so is everybody else. Just a little bit less miserable just because you didn't bring any rain gear. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's going to be what I'm going to have on. Uh, pro tip, wear, get some fucking boots or shoes that are somewhat waterproof, water-resistant. Because what really kills you, I don't care if you've got the best rain gear in the planet, what gets you, what will literally freeze your balls off is wet-ass feet in that cold. Um, like, I'm taking boots with me that are 
on Sunday that are 100% waterproof. They're North Face, warm as shit. I'm probably, my feet are going to get hot, probably. But uh, they're like fucking duck boots. They're waterproof. You know, rubber across the bottoms or whatever. But they're also insulated, like 800 grams insulate. Yep. You know, warm boots. That was the first place I went when we were talking about weather and what's going to happen and it started changing to be rain on Sunday. First thing I changed out was what shoes I'm taking. Mm-hmm. Went immediately to a hunting boot that's fully waterproof. I'd rather deal with a little bit of sweaty feet than super wet, cold feet. Well, when the when the shoe or boot itself is soaked, like you just yep. stepped in a pond with it, it is holding so much just cold to your foot. I mean, it's like a cold, wet rag on your foot, you know? It, it. I agree completely. It's better, even though your feet can get wet and get cold from just, like, sweating feet, it is not the same. They are They are not created equal. It is different. Um, but either way, we're going to have a good time. Um, and there is going to be, there's a bunch of pipe hitters coming, uh, you know, very well-established winners that are going to be there this weekend. Um, talking about me and Ted here, everyone else. One, two, they're yeah, fighting right. three, four. <laughs> <laughs> no, we've got a lot of the, this is a, a big match. Um, there's, uh, I'm not going to go through them all. They're all, everyone knows who goes to the East Coast matches. Um, they're seasoned winners going to be here. Yeah, they're, they're, and it's going to be fun. Um, and we've got a kick-ass squad. Uh, Dave Thomas was supposed to be here, but uh, Joe Biden is a fucking retard. And changed up, like, literally because of, like, Joe's policies or whatever decisions he decided to, like, abandon the border even more so. Dave has been reassigned, and he has to work. So he's paid for a plane ticket, paid for his match fees, and he's not going to be able to make it. So I hated that, but we're still going to have a kick-ass squad tomorrow and, and Sunday. I'm really looking forward to it. Before we get to tomorrow, first let's start out with Ted. Who the fuck are you? Just, just another guy. <laughs> so, if you, if in case you haven't heard, uh, he ha- uh, Ted has actually been a guest a couple times on uh, Frank's podcast, Everyday Sniper, and uh, that's where I think that's first. Like your first episode might have been my first introduction to whom you are, and when I saw like. Well, when I learned that you were like the new Windrose guy, I was like, oh, fuck. Okay, yeah, I know exactly what, what that is. So, um, yeah, you, uh, you're you an engineer by trade? Engineer by trade, structural engineer. I, uh, I designed buildings to make them stand up. One of our coined phrases in structural engineering is anybody can build a brick shithouse, but it takes a structural engineer to make it barely stand up. If anybody in the construction industry knows that's a little bit of a joke because we always get blamed for making stuff way too big and strong, but... Kind of the way it goes. I'm, I'm, I'm in the camp of overbuild everything. Yeah. Everything's to be overbuilt. Um, but you, you have an affinity for long range shooting, and you have uh, been doing so for when? When did you start shooting long range? Um, competitive wise, not very long. But I started studying long range shooting in about 2007 or eight. Wow. Kind of really started looking into it. What is it? Really caught some interest. Um, always knowing it was possible, but started figuring out the science with it, you know, what, what's making it happen and those kinds of things. Somewhere around 2012, I, I won my first rifle. I never even owned a rifle yet. I was at like a, a banquet type of thing where they raffle off guns and whatever. 
stuck two tickets in a bucket and they drew my name and I and I chose a um a twenty two two fifty rifle. Had had no clue what I was getting into. It's a bad little cartridge though. Yeah. It, it it's a lot of fun. About a year later I got a neighbor. He says, Hey, we're going to Montana to shoot prayer dogs, you know, I'm looking for someone to go along if you want to go. Barely knew the guy. I knew, I talked to him about as much as you and I had really talked before this trip. Right. And and uh I, I was like, Well I this was on Friday. I said, if you can wait till Tuesday, I can go with you. He says, I'll wait. Um, told my boss on Monday, I'm going to leave for 10 days. My boss said, okay, see you later. Nice boss. Yeah. Jumped in a truck and rode 16 hours with this guy that I barely even knew. Spent a week with him, then rode 16 hours home. And, um, that was my first foray into, into some rifle shooting. And when we got done with that trip, I knew enough about long-range shooting to be dangerous, but not to really understand it yet. And once we got through that trip, then it really started to come together with, here's the things we can do to make this easier, to shoot prairie dogs farther. You know, let's get out there to that four or 500-yard number and start really, really whacking them with that. Well, 22-250 is a wonderful cartridge for that venture because it's so, well, especially today with, like, modern bullets and modern ballistics and everything and faster twist rates and everything. I mean, I mean you get a... An eighty-eight grain ELDM fucking cooking out of a twenty-two two fifty, and that thing is a wind bucking bastard. And but then you want to go get into even lighter pills. I mean, that's that's crazy speeds and stuff. So prairie dogs, that's like to me the perfect cartridge for that is a twenty-two two fifty. And um, I know CL, he's got a twenty-two two fifty that he deer hunts with. He said it is like fucking lightning strikes. God rips their spines out when that bullet hits them. Cause it's going so fast, ballistic tip just oh, and it's fucking wreaks havoc. It's it's an underrated cartridge. It, it is strictly due to velocity. Yeah, because if you're running a fifty or fifty-five grain bullet, you can push them like thirty-six hundred feet per second, right? So when the bullet gets there, it's the hydrostatic shock of what happens that it just turns all of their innards to jello. Yeah, and so the temporary it, wound cavity just wobbly wobbly wobbly. So huge, and so you don't really you know. If you're shooting larger game with a 22-250, which not a lot of people do, right. but if you do and you hit them like in the lungs and you then you go to take the lungs out, they're just complete jello. Yeah. I mean, there's no there's no consistency left to them. That's gonna Nothing's going to survive that. Right. I mean, right. nothing. No, if, if it does that, they're dead, period. So My, my favorite's when prairie dogs go about 12 feet in the air. Yeah. 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 yeah look we don't have stuff. those here, dude. Let's get some. <laughs> Did you, do you think you could do that? I'm pretty sure. You think you could transport? What would keep? What would keep that from working? Probably your water table, because they dig in the ground to burn. Oh water. yeah, your water table's too high. And they oh yeah. Ground. yeah, dude, we're at 64 feet above sea level. And generally, they're in a lot drier climates. You know, that's that's the place they are from all the way from Texas to Montana. Um, you know, they're kind of in that drier place. So so maybe there's something with it. I I don't even know. We'd have to ask a pro that knows more about where they could survive. But. That, I mean, obviously farmers hate them, ranchers hate them, it, I mean, it breaks their cattle's yeah. legs and stuff um, like that. But. Even even zoos hate them. They used to be in zoos everywhere. You go to a zoo now and you can barely find them because they always get out. They dig under everything and get out. Put concrete. Put the fuckers in concrete. They ain't going nowhere. Put them in a glass box. Um, so, so after that, did that prey dog thing and um, started saving up for a rifle, started, kept studying things. And, and then decided to get serious about it. I had some other big projects going on, remodeling the house, got married, all these things. Um, and I always told my wife that my last hobby I ever do will be long-range shooting. And the, the house got far enough along, and the wife got happy enough because we were married long enough. Um, 
that I finally bought like a, a actual rifle for long range shooting, 6.5 Creed Vortica, mm-hmm. put it in a Bravo chassis. I actually owned that gun a year before I even shot it because I had to finish my house project before I was allowed to get into this whole deal. Nice. Um, so the same neighbor I went to Montana with, we ended up finding a match, the South Dakota Steel Classic. Um, they were looking for ROs. I went to my neighbor and said, hey, you want to go see what this is about? Let's go RO. So we drove nine and a half hours up there, RO'd that match and, and saw what it was, was really interested. I'd been listening to Frank's podcast for probably a year and a half already, mm-hmm. two years, kind of learned everything that, that Frank put out there. Um, and, then, and then in 2019, I shot my first match, which was the week after the South Dakota match. Because Jim C. said, hey, you guys are in Iowa. Are you coming to my match next week? I didn't even know about it. Yeah, border war stuff. Yeah, border war stuff. I didn't know anything about it. He said, well, if you if you just show up, I got a free spot for you. So I, I went home, got my stuff together, and, and, and showed up. Um, and everyone talks about when you go to your first match, you're probably going to get your shit kicked in, right? There was 100 shooters there, and I finished 50th. I felt pretty good about that's that. Not, dude, that's way better than where I finished my first match. Yeah, so I... I I was excited about that. So that that kind of told me I've got maybe I've got a knack for it. Maybe I've got something in it that works. Well, I'll tell you what. I've never shot with you, but I know what you do have a knack for. You do have a knack for analyzing a an aspect of let's just say exterior ballistics and then putting numbers to it to which it then creates a tool for a shooter to be able to utilize to help them figure out that aspect much easier because you are behind the, the everyone knows what a what a, a wind rose was like long time ago like the old like marine corps or was it army that either way um, it was outdated it was not it was not correct and then this new one i remember when it what when when Frank had posted the updated windrows on Sniper's Hide and said that you know Jack Master um, Ted is Jack Master on Sniper's Hide in case you didn't know um, that you had gotten you were behind that that you you did that and everything and I was like oh okay sweet I have one right there in my pack like laminate it's been there for like over a year and do you use it. You'll find out tomorrow how that wind rose, how if probably where you are in or out west, it makes more sense. But here, everything on our square range, we're so covered by, I mean, there's woods all around us. We're in the middle of like a, a, a national forest where we're shooting more. And like we talked about today, the wind is, first of all, there's no, you, you'll learn this. There is absolutely zero indicators at the shooter. Meaning, if there's any, if your flag, like I, ha- I have my flag that's hanging on my tripod, it may be doing at like literally hanging dead, okay. But you're holding something equivalent to full value down there. The range, think of a square that's a box that has trees all around that box, the perimeter of that box. But on the inside, so the fire line here, every stage is separated by a thin row of trees that goes out about 300 fucking yards. Okay. So you can imagine the, the, the alleyways. Yes. Alleys basically. And so you can imagine the disruption of the wind that it, the, the wind is dealing with getting to you. 
yeah, if you knocked everything down, right, like had you released a million beavers out there and let them have a week, um, then the wind would be a lot different as far as what you could feel, see, measure here versus what's going on down there. It'd be a lot closer. But there's literally, I will probably not ever hold my Kester up to get a wind ring tomorrow. You probably won't see many people doing that. If you do see people doing that, it's because they haven't shot there at front line much. So they're trying to look for a, a fucking wind call, right? There, not, there is none. Your best wind call indicator will be Mirage. And even then, it can lie to you because I'll give you an example. Tomorrow, we're going to shoot from the, and I'll show you which one we're talking about, the 500-yard deck. Okay, so deck, the, the berm, the farthest berm is 500 yards. Okay. I remember I have shot that stage before. I don't remember what the, the actual stage was, but it was five, the target was is at like 520 or something like that, 500. Well, you know, we hadn't started shooting yet. We're all on glass and we're all seeing a dead left to right wind or mirage. Mirage is like, I mean, it's textbook, right? First shooter gets up, is blown way off the left side, right? And then we see him walking in and then he hits that plate and the core exploding from that bullet, the dust off the plate, it zips like fucking like 10 mile an hour that way while the mirage is still going this way, right in front of it, just 500 yards. It's not like it's a grand and you're mm -hmm. looking at some big difference between the midway of the shooting, fi the firing position and the target. No, it's only 500 yards there. And the mirage just in that short distance is doing something, it's lying. It's, I mean, everyone saw it beforehand. We all agreed as a squad that the mirage is left to right. And it it wasn't the the wind was not doing that the mirage might have been doing something funny, but it's so it's hard to to use the wind rows in in certain settings like that because you, you got to know of the wind direction to use that. Now if it was if we were in in Oklahoma or Texas or like a field match to where it's all open like beautiful stuff that you see out in all of the midwestern states Iowa cornfields Iowa bean field exactly totally open yeah 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 that stuff that is where like your money is made with that windrose because it is okay i have a a 830 wind and i can apply that percentage to my wind call here it's like literally throw a digger and just correct off that digger. It's just the way it is here. Um, even even down at uh, uh, Arena down in Georgia, that's where that's uh, Phil Cashin MPAs. That's his range that he uses all his matches down there. It is more of that. Even though it's a big square range in, in the south, it still has more of a a feel that you can feel that it's that's why the wind is always bad there because there's nothing around it. It's wide open. And so you can kind of still get at the shooter at your firing position, get a good idea of what the wind's doing. And you can boom, bust up that wind rose and it's money. In fact, when I took the, uh, um, the modern day sniper course up at pig river back in was it December, November, December, um, they were, they mentioned it. I said, I, I got one, pulled it right in my pack and I passed it around the whole class. So everybody got to look at it and got to see, um, 
like what they were kind of talking about. They were glad that they didn't have one on hand. I had one with me. It's laminated. It's right there. And I, I passed it around. And so everyone got to look at it and everything. And I think a lot of things started kind of clicking in their heads because they had a visual, a, a, a they had, you could use a visual aspect to make sense of what they're being told verbally. And it, it the, the numbers, the math's correct. The math, it works. It's just if it, you got to have that position, you got to have that, those, that environment to where it can be utilized. Right. I can't get a wind call outside on my Kestrel when I'm sitting here in this house. If I go out there, I can. So the Kestrel can't call wind for me in here. Right. It, the, a windrose or even a Kestrel can't call wind for me at places like Frontline because it's, there is no wind at the shooter. It feels like you're shooting in a tunnel where as soon as it goes 200 yards, 300 yards from your barrel, that bullet is experiencing something a lot different than you are at the shooter. And that's what makes frontline tricky. It's not the, not the mile per hour because I think the strongest wind I've seen out there may have been 15. Like that was a windy fucking day if it at frontline was 15. It's not that. What's, strong, what's, what's tough about it is you don't know what the wind's doing unless you can – you got an eye for something that most people don't, you know, and um, tomorrow your, your rent for staying here and your Uber charge is giving my wind calls this weekend. Well, that's easy. Yeah. Left edge, left edge. Until you're on the far left side of the range and then it becomes right edge or off a right edge. But for the most part, you're right. Okay. So the, the wind rose, um, that's where I kind of got things started there, drew that up, listening to Frank and or reading on Sniper's Hiding Things and, and, and said, let's find a better way to do this. Let's, let's, take, let's take the math on the shooting line out of the process. And doing that, it also helped a lot of shooters understand what a windrose does better because they can see all the math laid out with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a, lot of, that's a lot of things I do is just trying to... Trying to trying to break it down so shooters can understand what the math can do for you and how you use it and maybe how we got to where it's at. Like Eric Cortina always says, everybody wants to upgrade their hardware, but not a lot of people want to upgrade their software. Right. And that's a lot of what I'm working on. What's the software? What's the wind rows? What's the gun mile per hour? Um, what's that system? What's the speed drop factor? You know, all of these things where... You can learn other systems that upgrade your software to make you a better, faster shooter with more confidence. So that, that's that's what I've been trying to do. And then, you know, and, and having the, the teaching part with it, teaching people how to do it. I get a lot, a lot of phone calls or emails or messages about, man, I don't get this. How do you how do you do it? And then I have to walk people through it. This is how it works. And then you can almost see the light bulbs over the telephone or, or, or email go off. But how much easier is it to just like, all right, hold on a second. All right, check your email. And then boom, you've got like something in front of them, a table of some sort that they're like, oh shit, I see it now. And and then the, the light bulb really goes off and it, it takes something like that for them to see something. And uh, Ted's got a whole stack of, of charts that he brought he brought with him. And it's not even all of them, but he's got a chart for fucking everything. So every, one thing, everything your Kestrel does, but things that your Kestrel doesn't do. And, uh, I mean, everything that now long range shooting today, I guess with the dawn of the internet, well, I should say the dawn of the internet, but the popularity of the internet and 
you know, the popularity of the sport itself, PRS and podcasts, uh, you name it, YouTube videos, a lot of the stuff that was, I mean, like sniper, field craft, fucking voodoo shit. It is no longer that. It never was that. It's just, it wasn't as widely. You, you didn't have any place to get the information. Right. And with, with the internet, now we are, we're, we're in what's called the information era. Absolutely. I mean, it's maybe not been coined that, but with the internet, the way things, the information era. So we, now we're getting all this information and everybody can learn anything. And, and yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. Help people learn. And all of those things that, you know, were mystery to, to like, well, how do you, how do you know where to hold to hit a target at a thousand yards? All of these things. And then some, you have it broke down to where it's on paper in front of somebody. And it's literally just like following almost like a, just like a graph, like right here. I just move my finger over and go up. There it is. There's, you know, whatever, like your speed drop shit. That shit was fucking crazy. Like how you figured that out. I didn't figure that out. Right. But I just put it in a form that people can see how it works to understand what it's doing. You're like the spreadsheet guru. Yeah. And, and spreadsheets are great, right? But spreadsheets are mostly about how you present the information. Right. So that people can easily read it and understand it. I have looked through countless like dope charts, drop charts, whatever you want to call them. And every time I see one that people do, and it's just like a blank Excel with giant cells and a number in it, and there's nothing bold and nothing gray line, so you can actually like read the information quickly, I just grind my teeth at it. Like, why didn't you format something to make it easy to use? Well, even with the same, yeah, piggybacking what you're saying, even if you are presenting the same exact data, the same information, the way in which you like you said the way in which you present it on say a a spreadsheet or something like that can make all the difference of how someone how well someone can actually utilize it mm-hmm. that in and of itself is a talent to me i mean because i i don't know shit about spreadsheets it's, and how to do them or it's the same idea when you like look at a reticle and your brain says that's messed up i don't get it or you look at a reticle and your brain says that's easy i get it a chart like a cell file can be the exact same way. You can look at it and your brain go, blah, what is that? Or your brain can look at it and say, ooh, there's this, there's this file, this column, here's this number, and it becomes easy. So organizing it in a good way and then presenting it in a good way makes it easier for people to, to get it, you know? Yeah, I mean, like a tri- any trimmer reticle or horse reticle is like fucking hieroglyphics to most people because it's the most pointless reticle system ever. But yet, you have other radicals that, I mean, gen, just generally accepted as like, okay, this radical makes sense to almost everyone. You know what I'm saying? Yep. I mean, there's a number of radicals that that come to mind that that fit that description, and just a small handful that don't make sense to anybody. Um, and and yeah, these charts are, I mean, I'm an idiot and I can follow them. Pretty good. You you broke down one. I, I had to help you a little today. No, we got I, you. There. No, you definitely had to help me, but it, with that little bit of help, it it made it made sense to me. Yeah, charts charts. I got the the wind rose I did for Frank. Um, kind of through the snipers. Well, all this has been kind of through snipers hide, but 
a wind rose that breaks down so you don't have to multiply a wind direction by a percentage. Right. You know, a wind at 1 o'clock is 50% of the wind speed. That's an easy number. But a wind at 130 is 70%, actually 0.707. Um, so when you got a 13 mile an hour wind, you're trying to multiply by 0.7, what do you got to do? Well, here's a chart. You can look it up, pull a chart up, easily interpolate between a couple numbers and have a number pretty quick and easy. So it, it's kind of like making the wind rose idiot proof, really. Right. It's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, and it works because I can understand it. So did, you, well done. Did, did that one. And then it kind of went into working on the, the weaponized math stuff for Frank. And that's what really caught Frank. When I was at his class and he, he saw this in a book and he was like, what's this? And I said, that's your weaponized math. And he was like, no way. And I said, yeah, look at the numbers. This is all weaponized math. It's just in a chart form. So you don't ever have to have a calculator on the shooting line. All the math is done. I idiot proofed it so you can't mess it up. Here's how the process works. And, and be, see that one. before we were like less than three minutes after that, he's snapping a picture and sending it off to, to uh, Mark Taylor in Alaska saying, you got to see this because it's really cool. And, so I, I refined it a little more after that, but made it really simple so that now you can go to a shooting line, not have to get your calculator out and, and get this done. Yeah. I had a couple guys say, hey, man, you kind of saved my ass because I had this in my, in my data book, but I didn't have my phone with me because I forgot it, so I didn't have a calculator. And, and then using that chart. That yeah, the, and I, I'm, looking, I'm looking at kind of like what mine is at 300 and going through it, and dude, it's about fucking dead on. I mean, it's within a tenth. And with that weaponized math chart, I've I've doped anything from a three thirty eight Lapua even down to a twenty two two fifty using that chart. Dude, I like it because I'm yeah. I, I love when I, when I took Frank's course, I I really enjoyed the weaponized math thing and it, I mean I think at there was one yard line, I can't remember what it was like six and some change or something that it it was only like a tenth off. I'm like no one's gonna miss because of that and. I mean, a Kestrel could easily say that very same same thing. It works, the weaponized math. So Frank and Mark bird-dogged out that the system. The, the system, and then you have then, like you said, just negated the need for any electronics or, or a, a, even a fucking pencil and paper. Right. You have this chart with you, laminated like you have, and just like stick it in your pack. And if you're going, you got a new a new caliber. Doesn't matter. You said it could be a 308. It could be a a, a six SLR, or it could be a 375 Shytac. That that math it works. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. It doesn't matter how fast your bullet's going. It it takes care of all that for you. It, BC doesn't fucking matter. It does. It does have a certain BC and velocity range. It works the best in. Sure. It'll do everything. But there is a certain zone that it works the best in. Where it's got the and, highest form of accuracy or yeah, amount of accuracy. Yeah. And yeah. that's kind of around between the, the 308, 6 Creed, the Dasher, like our competition cartridges is where it really kind of fits. You get into, you know, like a, a 416, it's going to be different, but it'll be real close. It'll put you on target. On target. Now, well, that's, the, right. that's the thing. When you're doping a rifle out, that's what matters. You know, is, uh, okay, uh, I look a little two, take two tenths, low, they come up two tenths, boom, there it is. Mark, write it down. That's my dope for that yardage. Yeah. Go to the next one. Okay. I can. All right. Well, I know that this one is this one. Let's go. Let's go to the next yard line. And I was two tenths low on that one. Let me add two tenths to this. Look. Look at that water line. Perfect. You know. And it it works. And so. And at I, the end of weaponized math, the best part of weaponized math is that when you're done doping out your rifle, 
you have verified data for every yardage. You, you no longer have, here's my 600, here's my 1,000. Because you, you chronographed your rifle, true at 600, you know, shot, shot the waterline 600, miss, miss, hit, hit, miss, miss, hit, hit, to get there, and then, then true your velocity and then went to 1,000, and you're kind of hoping for the things between it. But if, if you're a new shooter, the best place to start is doping your rifle at every yard line. It's a little bit archaic, right? It's what they used to do in the 70s because that's what they had to do. They didn't, they didn't have, have programs. Yeah, they have blizzard programs at but, all. But still today for a new shooter, it's the best place to start to, to have it right. So after that, you know, I kind of dug into weaponized math a lot further. And I like weaponized math, but my problem with it was it only works for every 100 yards. Like all the information that they had was only 100, 200, 300, 800, right. 900,000. Well, what happens if you're on a range that they have a... Uh, 600, then a 750, and then an 850, and then a 900. Right. Now weaponized math doesn't really work. There's a lot of holes in there. Right. So I sat down with, with the information that they had started out with, dove into numbers really deep, and found all of the weaponized X factors. So here's a chart that you can change the numbers in the, the weaponized math chart. So if you had a, you had a target at 600, you hit waterline, right? Your next target's at 750. Well, in the weaponized math, there's a multiplier. You take your 600-yard dope times a multiplier to get to 700. Sure. So this chart is that multiplier. So if I had to go from 600 yards to 700, instead of multiplying by, that would be 1.3 to go from 600 to 700. But if instead if I multiply by 1.47, which I'm reading from the chart, that'll get me from 600 to 750. So here's a chart where now you have every 25 yards, weaponized math and value to be able to dope your rifle out. So even if someone has a really weird range with nothing that's even yardage numbers, yeah. you can take the number from there and still do weaponized math. Yeah, you know you're going to have to send me all of these charts for me to have. That's on Sniper's side. Oh, it is? You betcha. I've been, I've been writing articles for Frank, and he's posting them on the front page. Which I'm never on the front page. Right. So the article's way out front is where you're going to start finding a lot of this stuff that I'm writing actual articles for Frank to, to post. He, he actually just posted another one today for me that, that I wrote him. So, yeah, weaponized map charts, there's there's all kinds of stuff out there um, that, that really make that system work if you're interested in running it. So. Well, everybody, uh, what I want to talk about is... Uh, you hear a lot of people now that are catching up on the on the 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 gun number, the the mile per hour, you know, for your gun number. Um, I understand it, but you would be best to for those who maybe either, well, I, I don't understand. What do I need to do? Do I got to turn spin drift off? Do I got to do this? Uh, you'd probably be much better at explaining it than than me to give them an accurate uh, gun number or whatever for for their gun. So. Well, we we go into into that about so you you do you want to know what the gun number is or how to find it both both okay so what the gun mile per hour number is is for in ballistics from six hundred yards and in the the amount of wind you hold is technically like a, a mathematical curve right mm -hmm. it's a nonlinear solution. But 600 yards and in, what we've done is kind of made it linear. And, and, it, and it works very well outside of a few decimal points, okay? So what we do with the gun mile per hour number is we start finding out how much, how many mils or minutes per mile an hour that your rifle needs. So now we can do an easy wind call. So 
what we're trying to find. And that's for a full value win. For a full value from from three or nine o'clock. Right. Right. So you have to have a three or nine o'clock win for the system. You, you have to you have to break your win from angles to three or nine o'clock. Yeah, and that and that three or nine o'clock wind mile per hour will then be broke down based off of what your actual your actual wind direction is. Right. So you find out the base number from the three or nine, and then you base, that's where you're using the, 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 the wind rows. So the wind rows, if you had a 10 mile an hour wind at 1030, seven miles an hour is what's your actual three or nine o'clock wind. It would be your nine o'clock wind would be seven miles an hour. So at seven miles an hour is what you gotta use. But we need to, first we need to find your gun number. Sure. Well, no, first we need to explain what the gun number is. Mm -hmm. Okay, and what, we, what we're gonna do is draw a linear solution so that 100 yards, it's 0.1 mil. 200 yards, 0.2 mil, 300 yards, 0.3, 400 yards, 0.4, 500 yards, 0.5, and 600, 0.6. So we've created a linear solution there so it's easy to apply it in the field. Mm -hmm. um, and then what we can do is use multiples of our gun number to, to multiply it multiple times, okay? So sometimes it's really hard to explain what it is without explaining how to get the number and then how to use it. Right. So, so what it is, is this linear solution to the wind, okay? Um, in minutes of angle, it's actually your yardage divided in half. So if you take, um, if you're gonna run minutes of angle at 100 yards, you're looking for half a mil, or half a minute. At 200 yards, one minute. At 400 yards, two minutes. At 600 yards, you're looking for three minutes. And I haven't even heard the MOA breakdown yeah. of this, because I mean, no one shoots MOA anymore. But. Right, not a lot of people do, but when you're, when you're working with brand new shooters, and like some of these, these lecture classes that I'm teaching, I'm having a lot of people show up and say, I just bought this brand new scope. It's a damn mill scope. And they, but I want them to be able to use the system as well. MOA scope. Yeah, MOA scope. Yeah. And, and, and I want them to be able to use the system too. Sure. So in the MOA version, it works exactly the same. You just have to use your yardage divided by a half. So at 600 yards, three minutes. So there's one extra mass step in, in the minute of angle, but that's about it. Um, so what we're going to do to find your gun number is go to 600 yards in your ballistic program. Hopefully you've got your ballistic program trued out. You've already went and done weaponized math, done all those things, and after that you sit down with your with your um, with your, your your ballistic program, and you only have to do this once. Once you find this number, that's that's, it. that's always the number, unless you change load, change bullet, change something, or elevation, or, or change enough density altitude. Okay? Right. But if generally you're shooting all in the same place, it's going to be the same number. You have to change about four thousand feet of density altitude to change this number one mile per hour all right okay so you're going to take your ballistic program it's all trued up try to turn off as much of the other voodoo stuff as you can spin drift coriolis aerodynamic jump. jump we got to get rid of all of those things or know in your program where to find the information that's just the pure wind call okay we're going to set your wind at three o'clock or nine o'clock i like to use three o'clock and then we're going to scroll through the wind speeds until 600 yards is 0.6. And where that works out, that's your gun mile per hour. So at maybe at five miles an hour, you've got a uh, five miles an hour, you get like a 0.55. And then at six miles an hour, you got a 0.63. So your gun number is six for six miles per hour because it's the closest to 0.6 at 600 yards. Okay. Once I find that number, six miles per hour, now a six mile per hour wind at 100 yards is a wind hold of 0.1. A six mile an hour wind at 200 yards is 0.2. Two. 
a 600 mile or 600, six mile per hour wind at 400 yards is 0.4. Mm-hmm. See how this linearly kind of works mm-hmm. out. So now when someone says, I got a 10 mile an hour, or I got a 12 mile an hour wind from three o'clock at a 400 yard target, what do I do? Well, it's pretty easy because wind as a function of speed going from six mile an hour to 12 miles an hour is exactly times two. So our wind hold is also exactly times two. At 400 yards, our wind hold is 0.4 for six miles an hour. So at 12 miles an hour, it's 0.8. Mm-hmm. So in that in that order, it's actually linear. And if we go up to you know uh, the, the 6, 12, 18, that's the third, and we call it bracket, third bracket. Mm-hmm. So you're going to take your 0.4 at 400 times 3, 1.2 mils for an 18-mile-an-hour wind. So that's the gun mile per hour system, how you find it, and then how you use it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yeah. Did I explain it well? You did. Yeah. Okay. So... Yeah, and so it, there's a uh, the I guess the original way for a mile per hour that I remember Frank talking about was taking the first digit of your G one BC. That's a that's a very good starting spot. Right. Yeah. But then you have to true it for your velocity, your bullet, yep. your density, altitude, all those things. But if you're like in a total blank place, you don't really know. You're on a range, but you got a box and it has the BC on the box and, and no other information. Great place to start. Yeah. Absolutely use it. Yeah. And, and it's not, it, it, it doesn't always work that way too, because you you may know, do you know what the formula is to find a G1 if you have a G7? Yeah. What's the formula? Times two plus a little. Yeah. That's about what I figured. Thing. So yeah. my, like my, for example, my, uh, the, 131 blackjacks and the the 135 burger 25s they have they don't even have a published g1 is the g7s are 330 and 334 well double that that's six and like 660 ish 665 whatever 668 it's actually a seven mile an hour bullet so it's one of those where yeah you're right it'll get you close but run the numbers Right. And, and yeah. you'll see that that no, it, it was actually one more mile an hour above that to where it actually works out that way. So the the whole this might get really deep. The whole G one to G seven. Do you want to know why it's times two? No, I don't know. Do I want to know? Yeah, yeah. I don't know why, but yeah. Do you want to know why sure. it's times yeah. two? Okay. I mean, I get I get what they are and how they work, but I don't know what, why that one's different other than it was just a. Based off of a supposedly supposed based off of a different profile of projectile, right? Artillery, right? Okay, so ballistics is a study of aerodynamics, mm-hmm. how a bullet flies through air. If you think of it as air as a fluid, it becomes like fluid dynamics, right? Yeah. This is something I had to study in engineering in school: is fluid dynamics, how water flows around objects, how water flows. Hydrodynamics. Yeah. Hydrodynamics. All, yeah, all this stuff. Okay. So a bullet. Bl- uh, the ballistic coefficient equation is mass of the bullet divided by coefficient of drag times the area. What's the one thing that can change between G1 and a G7 ballistic uh, coefficient? Mass is the same on top. Area is the same on the bottom. The only thing that can change is coefficient of drag, right? Yeah. In studying fluid dynamics... If you look at the two different G1, G7 bullet profiles, yeah. you can correlate the, the, the shape of the nose 
to a standard shape for fluid dynamics. The coefficient of drag, which is, a, okay, I'm going to talk G1 first. Coefficient of drag for G1 is based on a triangle like it's flowing to the right. Like if a triangle's flying to the right, yeah. and its coefficient of drag is 0 0.50, so a half. Okay. The If you look at a modern long-range bullet, it has a very long, sleek, dynamic thing. There's also another shape that's um, further down the list. It's a streamlined body, and its coefficient of drag is 0 0.07. So we go from a 0 0.5 to a 0 0.07, which is almost like taking the second number away. Yeah. So right here in these two coefficients of just the streamlined body becomes that two number. Okay. Going from a triangle, coefficient of drag, to a streamlined body, coefficient of drag, there, that's your two number. If you get into fluid dynamics and study it mathematically, that's where it's at. Okay. And, and that's where in like the 19 or the 1890s when they did G1, what do you think they were studying? They weren't measuring bullets flying. No. They were studying, here's a cone flowing in water. Hey, let's make that assumption for a cone flowing through air. My ballistic coefficient is or, or coefficient of drag is 0.5. Yeah. And, and when, when they did G7 in the, what, the 1940s or something? Probably. They're probably not measuring bullets in flight yet, right? Yeah. So they had to pick one of these one of these shapes flowing through water that they've already studied. Which one flows through that water a little bit with, with less dra water right. drag? Yeah. Right. That's a streamlined body. And they had figured out this streamlined body shape has a coefficient of drag of this. So if someone looked at a bullet and said, well, let's apply that number to, to the equation. So that's where this two comes from. Yeah. If, 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 it's, if you break it out in the mathematics, it's absolutely there. Now, shooting and doing Doppler and all those things, we've kind of proven that that's... Well, that. I mean, enter the age of, of like, Ford off. Right. I mean, and, and that to me is... I mean, that to me is where I think... Like the industry just needs to, whether well, not, I'm going to say Hornady, but just for the, the, the science of Ford off, that's the direction everybody needs to be leaning into in 2022. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, instead Get of away from two and three, two and three, and then just bumping up this number when, as bullets get better, yep. I mean, quit just bumping up the same arbitrary numbers well, anymore. Um, the number's gone. Yeah, we're not using G one G seven anymore no. at all, unless you don't have a a, a, a curve, right? Yeah. Um, Brian Litz this week just posted on his on his Facebook page. He said um, G one versus G seven. Not too long ago, we were all using G ones. Remember those days? I responded with a comment and I said G one versus G seven. Nobody uses those anymore. We're all using uh, custom drag curves and yeah. yeah. Remember those days? Yeah, yeah. those days. That's yeah, exactly what I said because. You know, anybody that's really serious in long-range shooting is probably having a bullet that has a custom curve. Yeah. If you're you know, if you're running applied ballistics, you're running a custom curve. If you're running Hornady, you're Hornady. running a custom curve. Yeah. Well, but it's a Doppler curve, but it's still a, a custom curve. And, yep. and you're just altering it with that axial form factor to be, you know, th they've done the legwork for you. All you got to do is just true it up with the axial form factor. And that takes care of anything missing in the middle. Um and you know, I'm 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 a big fan of Ford off, and I'm scared to update my my Kestrel, dude. I, I chose not to until this match is over. Yeah, and I'm scared to update it because I've been told I've I've read that like somebody fucking Ed Hornady did something, I, and and it's like I'm like, well, the keys asking for an update. I'm like, fuck no, man, it's just working. I don't, <laughs> I'm not, you know, if you know, I'm not gonna fuck up a good thing if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Just for an extra two features. 
Yeah, or like a bullet in the library that I don't give two shits about, right. you know, like this fucking bullshit Spitzer bullet. I don't need that shit. I just, you know, my, mine works. I do wish they would add some of the, the 25s, like the Blackjack and the and the new burger. I mean, it's a fucking burger. They, they got almost all of Burger's bullets in there. Why don't, why don't you get that yourself? Just make sure you go to Applied Ballistics where they're doing their PDMs. Yeah. Get a PDM and you'll have the Blackjack curve. Yeah, well, no, they they have they uh, applied ballistics because someone has then that file is like now open like you can okay. get that file. Uh, so I've been told that you can yeah they've got a, if I'm not mistaken they've got the blackjack and maybe the, well, I'm sure they got the burger on file applied ballistics and burger lits all that they're gonna have burgers on there. Um, but I mean hell they've got it. Hornady's got every burger that I know of that does the one does one or nine on Ford off. Probably not yet, cause they're just they're just doing the one hundred nines. Okay, well, make them. It'll it'll be there, but I don't think it's there yet. Yeah, I'm speaking of one hundred nines. I'm actually excited to see what that one hundred nine ELDM will do. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's got a higher. That's I mean, negligibly, but I mean, a small minutia, but it's it's a higher BC than the one hundred nine burgers. I'm pretty excited about it. Hey, especially I mean, I don't see why I wouldn't, but the ELDMs. That's a critter killing bullet, dude. I, I love it. I've killed. I mean, to me, the the best for thin skin game like I never talk about hunting now, but thin skin game like deer or any, anything along those lines, the Amax was like a fucking phenomenal hunting bullet, and and the ELDM yeah, shares the same jacket as the Amax, and I've had nothing but good luck killing stuff. If the bullet hit it, it died. You know, with a an ELD, with any Hornady ELDM or Amax, any of those. And I mean, you get, and I'm hunting, I mean, that my hunt right now is six Creedmoor. And I'd love to get some factory ammo loaded with those with the 109s in it. I mean, the 108's been great. Um, but I mean, shit, I'll take, look for one grain more weight and get that big of a bump in BC. Right. Like you're that's, gonna, you're going to get a big bump in BC, but big about bump. the same velocity. Dude, I don't know that you will see a difference in velocity right. with a grain difference. You're not going to see that. But you will see a difference in, in wind deflection, and that, that I'm excited about. Right. I mean, you saw today out here shooting at the house. I mean, it, this wasn't windy out here today, nope. and you saw the wind. Um, have the flags were blowing. It's, when it's windy out here, I mean, it's fucking, for southeast, it's fucking windy. Yeah. And my house proves it. And uh, it's, um, I told you, like, if it's a zero-mile-an-hour wind in town, it's 10, 12 out here. And, uh, but I think, I think Hornady's going to do pretty good. As long as they don't blow up. That was one lot. No. One run. Uh-uh. I haven't heard much about it since it's been done. The 180, apparently the 187 mils have been probably the most egregious offender. So I've been told. So I always told, was always heard it was 147s. Yeah. Right. The 147s are blowing up. People got on video, like an ELR match and blowing up out of PRCs and shit. And, uh, you know, I've shot some, I've probably shot maybe two cases of the 147s in a Creedmoor. Um, I never had, I could tell, I never had one blow up, but, uh, the, um, CL is looking at him and Jeff are both building six, uh, seven millimeters right now. And, you know, I was listening to, you know, Kalen on the episode him and Phil did with, uh, Kalen's elk guide, the buddy his, I forgot what his name was. It was a really good episode. Mm-hmm. Did you listen to it? Yep. Do you remember them talking about how 
he said that, I mean, he 100% uses, at his psalm, he uses the 180 LDM. And he said that it is a fucking elk, is bad medicine for elk. And I was like, hey, see you need to go see if you can find some you know, 180s, you know, to shoot, because he's, he's building a psalm. And he he did. He started doing some more research, and he went on, I don't know what, where he found it. Maybe Sniper's Hide. I don't know. But he was like, dude, apparently these 180 ELDM have been blowing up, like, wholesale. Like, they've been blowing up and everybody's shit. I was like, damn. What the fucking horny got going on? What are they doing with them jackets? But I, I don't know. But hopefully that they, that's, those days are behind them. Maybe it was that, maybe it was a big run of 147s and the 180s, but if you bought any ran in the last however winter long, they, they're they fixed. I hope for the 109 because, I mean, if if it flies as good and true as the 108 does with higher wind deflection, it's a, it's a it's going to be a, a great bullet. And I'd, I'd hate to see it tarnished by a stupid problem like bullets exploding in the air. I had 150, or not 150, I had 50 grain VLDs blowing up on me. Really? Yeah, but I had them, I had them loaded for a twelve twist, twenty two two fifty, and I put them in an eight twist. Oh shit! <laughs> so I was blowing right. them up on my own accord. All right, well that <laughs> and they were probably going like four k. Yeah, thirty six hundred. Yeah, I was I was right on that limit of three hundred eighty thousand RPMs, and we got into Kansas. It was one hundred and three degrees, so shit was oh, running, yeah. it was, and it, it was had fast. No chance. And in about every eight eighth. Or tenth round, you'd see it just explode downrange. So. Oh shit! Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, any bullet can blow up. Yeah, you spin it hard enough, fast enough, it's gonna come apart. Jeff was telling me, we were talking about it a couple weeks ago. They were hunting in, I forgot where they were hunting, and he was shooting a twenty-five. It was a 257 Weatherby, I think. And they're shooting really light ballistic tips. And he was shooting over a bean field. And you know, if you've ever seen like in bean fields or whatever, you got those big balls of like gnats flying. You can actually see them, right? They're so thick of them. He said that they literally watched that bullet go into that ball of gnats and a bullet explodes. Off a of fucking night. Really? Dude, dude wow. that's crazy. That'd be cool. Yeah, and he said that, and in, in also, if it just went, like, just went above and just clipped the top of a beanstalk, Gone. Blow up. they're going that fast. Yeah. They're on the ragged edge of their construction and durability to hit a beanstalk and blow the fuck up. That's moving fast. Dude, they're moving way fast. Yeah. And CL's got us 25 STW, and he runs one... 10 grain acubines out of and they're screaming over like 4500 or some shit dude. wow they're fucking dude that's a lot of powder dude there's a lot of damn powder behind that little light ass bullet I thought about building a a 25 SCW but a fast twist for those fuckers could you imagine running them bullets like 26 or 3600 feet per second like what wind you know what I'm saying yeah what yeah. wind it'll have like it'll be like a 9 mile an hour you know, gun yep. going that fast. It'd be absolutely crazy. I'd love to do that. But then they were like, you can't find any SCW brass. Like you can't find it. Like, I don't even know if they even make it anymore, but if they did, you, you can't find it. And if you do find it, it's like $90 for 50 pieces of brass. And I'm like, man, 
I guess I could probably get away with just getting like 50 or 100 pieces for a hunting rifle. You know, do load development, reload them, go. You know? Minimal use. Minimal use. It ain't like I'm going to shoot a match with it. Yeah. How badass would that be, though? Swiss cheese and targets. Yeah, not a lot of the match. Yeah, I know. Oh, yeah. We thought about We thought about... I can just write it down on my ballistic chart, though. Hey, 3991. Or 2991. Yeah, that's, just, that's and, what it's going to be. And just under the limit here. Don't worry. Don't yeah, worry. dude. And then until you get a spot, we're like, what are you shooting? Seeing Trace. It's like the tra- like you get to, you know, you're holding, you know, 4.1 mils at a grand, you know, at sea level. That'd be crazy. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about your, the training that you're, that you are offering now. What are the courses? What are the things you're going to cover? And, and, you know, just tell us more about it in case people or somebody's interested. Okay. Um, first of all, most of the training I'm trying to do is geared toward brand new shooters. You know, Frank always says he's like day one. A lot of classes are day one. What I'm trying to do primarily is day zero. So for a shooter, or not, maybe not even a shooter yet, mm-hmm. that is really interested in what gear do I get? What rifle do I get? What am I looking for in a stock, in a chassis, in a rear bag? What am I looking for? Like that's the primary person I'm after because what I'm trying to do is gear new shooters up to get into the sport, to get into taking a Frank class, to get into taking a modern day sniper class. Um, so a lot of what I've been doing... You're like, like a prerequisite before like... Shooting one hundred and one, pretty much. Yeah. Right. So what I'm going to do is get you in a classroom. We're not even going to go to the range, and I'm going to PowerPoint you to death for two days. But I'm going to give you all the information to give you a solid base to get you started in the right direction. So the first day in the morning is all about gear. What are we looking for in gear? What's the kind of the calibers we're looking at? Um, what's a good caliber to learn with? What's the scope stuff? How do scopes work? How do you select a scope? looking at reticles, looking at chassis, looking at grips, looking at adjustable forend or uh, butt stocks, looking at bipods. And in most of these classes, I have quite a bit of gear there for you to look at, to finger it, to touch it, to see what it is, figure out what you want, you know, kind of starting a basis on gear. That afternoon, we're going to talk a lot about fundamentals. Just basically what are fundamentals. And it's really interesting to watch people, guys that have shot for 50 years come to the class And after we break down all of the fundamentals for them to say, I thought I knew how to shoot, but I I don't think I have any any idea. I've been doing it wrong this whole time. Right. Right. So breaking all the fundamentals down so you can see what they are. I demonstrate a few of them. We do a little bit of dry fire practice. And then um, you can bring your rifle to the class and we're going to check fitment for you. We're going to try to give you a good fundamental position behind the rifle, you know, straight behind the bore, shoulders, knees, everything square to the rifle. Look at your cheek riser, look at your length of pull, look at your scope placement, look at all of these things to see what fits you the best. So that way, if you go home and practice and you actually start shooting, you've got an idea what the rifle should feel like. Mm-hmm. Um, and also a lot of guys in the class right there, I bring a set of tools and, hey, if you want to move your scope, let's move it. Let's make an adjustment. Length of the pull, shorten pull, whatever we need to do. Um, that's all day one stuff, so gear and then fundamentals. Day two stuff, in the morning we go through ballistics. So kind of like this BC thing we talked about, like where's some of that number come from? I don't get too deep in it. About as deep as we went tonight is about as deep as I get into something. Yeah. But, but what is ballistics? How does velocity affect it, um, affect your BC? What is supersonic, transonic, subsonic? Um, so breaking out the very basic ideas to understand what long-range shooting is in ballistics. In ballistics, then we'll also talk about how to zero your rifle. 
and how you don't have to go down range anymore to measure on a target because you're supposed to have a gridded reticle three inches in front of your face. You got a roll. You got a ruler in front of you. Right. You right. need with twenty five most power zoom to see it. I mean, there's there's no need to go down there with a ruler or a tape measure. Right. So something that a lot of guys that are brand new to long range shooting and getting into a first focal plane reticle don't understand that. And you can show them that. You know, it's through slides and photos, but you can show them that. Um, and then that we also talk about weaponized math and how it works. Um, and that's the ballistics part of it. And then in the afternoon, we go through a lot of the wind stuff. What is wind? Of course, the moving air, right? How does it work? What are terrain effects? What are we looking for in terrain effects that can change things? How often are we measuring the target? Do we, you know, do we measure it at the shooter, quarter way, halfway, three quarters away, and at the target? Or do we measure it only at me and the target because it's only a 300-yard shot? Like trying to give you a realistic idea of what you're looking for in sectors of wind between you and the target and elevation, you know, getting into higher elevations, next wind level up. How big are they? Where do they go? Um, then we get into like the gun mile per hour stuff. How do we find that number? How do we use that number? And a lot of the wind stuff is spent on the gun mile per hour system to get you basically to understand the idea of it. Um, through most of this class, like the ballistics, when we do the ballistics on Sunday morning and we talk about shooting gun mile per hour and then shrewing the program, I actually have a way to, to mirror my phone right to the projector. And, we, and I go through it in Hornady Ford off on my phone. Here's what it looks like. Step by step. Here's how you do it. Here's what we're looking for. Gun mile per hour. Same way. I can get the phone out. Here's the same rifle. We, set, we start with one rifle from the beginning, one cartridge, one load, and keep working through it all day with the same information. And we take that same now true ballistic program and we find the gun mile per hour for that gun. So guys in the class can see how that happens. And then we do a whole lot of examples about how you actually use this. Because I found out we start with very simple examples. We keep building on it. So you get the concept. We get a little harder. Then we have to go to the wind rows and throw the wind rows into the concept. So you know you got to do your wind rows plus your gun mile per hour and your bracket and get your hold, do the whole process. So that's the primary training I'm trying to do is the day zero stuff. Yeah. Um, to complement with it, I'm also doing like one day on range classes. Mm-hmm. Um, Going to be very basic. I'm trying not, not really trying to make that my forte because there's so many guys doing that. Yeah. And guys that do it well, I don't need to be in that market as well. But for guys that are coming to my classes, if they decide to come to a one-day class, then I give them a little bit of a discount, kind of get their money twice kind of deal, right? Yeah. Um, but then they also know me. The instructor knows. They know the instructor. I know the student. I know what gear they have. So I am doing a few on-range on classes um, and that kind of thing. Last fall, I ended up doing one positional class. Mm-hmm. Um, had Robert Brantley scheduled to come to Minnesota. Um, things didn't work out with Robert. His truck lost a transmission, couldn't oh. come. We didn't have that many guys in the class because it was October. Right. Um, so I ended up kind of taking that on myself. I told the guys we're going to turn this in from a two-day to a one-day. And I'll, I'll work for tips. You just tip me what you want. If it's worth your time at the end of the day, give me some money. But I didn't want to leave them hanging with they took a day off of work or whatever and had no class. Yeah. Right? So made sure we did it. So a little bit of positional stuff as well. Um, just covering the basics there. I'm, I'm not really trying to be a full-time instructor. Yeah. This is just part-time for me. It's something I do on the side for fun. Sure. You know, in, in that kind of Contribution thing. to the sport of which you love. Right. And uh, if you ask my wife, I'm contributing too much. Um, I'm shooting matches, uh, local and the, the national PRS stuff. I'm, I'm, rain, I'm the match director for six like club matches through the summer. I also have two PRS regional matches I'm doing. 
um, and then teaching classes on top of that. So I've just had January and most of February off and every weekend from now to almost Thanksgiving for me is booked up with doing something long range shooting. Oh, wow. Shooting a match, putting on a class, putting on a, a, a match. I think I have, well, I, my 4th of July weekend actually just filled up. I think I have two weekends between now and Thanksgiving that I don't have something going on. Holy shit. So I'm, I'm in long range shooting. I love, I love shooting too. I I don't like that much, you know? And, and then don't tell my boss, but there's probably a good 10 or 15 hours a week at my normal job that I spend doing writing articles and charts and stuff like that. Yeah. That's going to happen sometime too. About as deep as I can get in long range shooting. I'm trying to be as deep as you can get into it without it actually being your full time job. Cause it's coming close to, to being that as much of time as you're putting in. I can't say I wouldn't, I wouldn't turn that opportunity down yet. Yeah. You know, that came along and happy the right kind of thing. But you know, if it, if it was out there, yeah. I'd, I'd certainly look really hard at it. So, man, I I, I don't know. I I guess I'm just like I've always thought myself the jack of all trades, master of absolutely none. And uh, I've got I mean right now I've got jujitsu that I love. Uh, man, I I I have so much fun. Um, I got stuff on some weekends for that, uh, but most is during the week. Um, soccer's coming up. I'm Jax's coach. His soccer season starts again um, March 3rd, his first practice. My boat, you know, summertime, I'm going to be on a boat with a cold beer in my hand or I'm going to be fishing. Um, you know, then the I, I fit the matches in where I can, ones that make sense and travel and everything because I don't do a whole bunch of traveling. I, I need to start, like, Top 20 and everything for me to do a whole bunch of traveling because it ain't worth me to get my teeth kicked in and spend two grand, you know, to do it. So I can keep two grand, kick my own teeth in here. So let, let's talk about the travel thing a little bit. What we're doing here is a match trade, right? That's mm-hmm. kind of what I'm trying to get started. Yep. And, and I, I want to challenge this to a lot of shooters. Okay. I want to challenge you to do what I did. Find someone you might not know in a different part of the country and ask them to do a match trade. If you listen to a shooter like Phil Vallejo um, or uh, Mike Lilly, they both say to be a really good marksman, you have to be able to do this everywhere. Everywhere. I agree completely. But a lot of people can't afford to go do it everywhere. But if we start this match trade thing and people start asking someone else, hey, you help me, I'll help you, you can fly across the country, not have to rent a car, get a hotel room, and do a match for about the same price because you had to buy an airline ticket. Yep. As if you drove six or eight hours, got a hotel room, and, and did all gas. That. Yeah. Driving. Right. So my challenge to a lot of shooters, especially the guys that are in the PRS or mid-pack guys that want to get better, or the top guys that can't travel very far, ask someone to match trade. And and you go to them, you come, they come to you. You know, so when they come to you, you might have a little more expense, but maybe you've already got the hotel room, you've already got things, and and, and it works out for you. But, um, so yeah, just the match trade idea, I think, should be something that we try to push as, as an industry, and not just as a couple people. Like the industry, if you start this match trade idea, could could really be huge. Have you ever seen the movie The Holiday? Oh yeah, yeah, where they Cameron they Diaz yep, yep. and yeah, Jack Black's in it. Yep. My wife loves that movie, but it's kind of like the vacation version of this. Yep. 
they find each other online at this website that is geared towards this. Like, hey, like Cameron Diaz lived in L.A. She's a movie producer in L.A. And Kate Winslet is a book editor in the U.K. in, in London or outside of London or whatever. They find each other. They're both in like bad places as far as their love life. And they both like last minute like book flights the next day. They they talked they found each other and said, Hey, let's do a house trade. You know, I live in London, like great, I live in LA. And uh, you know, they book flights the next day. They never meet. They just cross paths in the air and they live in each other's houses for however many times or two weeks or whatever it was. That's kind of like what this is. This is yeah, I, I'm I'm I um need to look and see. I might be uh, getting a rain check for next season to be able to nail down, get a flight and all that stuff and not, and kind of work my schedule around it. I mean, this, when, when do the schedules come out? Like typically like December of the next year, January of the late? January is the solid schedule. This one comes out in December. It's kind of iffy. And then, then January comes This nailed down in January. Yeah. So, um, yeah. This year, in this year, if it'll work out for you and you want to fly to Kansas City, fly to Kansas City, I'll give you my BR to shoot and I'll shoot my 6.5 Creed and you can come shoot a match that way. Maybe you don't have to fly without a gun that way. No, I don't care. I'll, I'll, no, if I I'd fly with a gun. I, no, I, that that's it's just like one more headache thing. I don't know. Maybe it's an excuse for me to just not fucking go somewhere. And, and like I told you, I just th- today was my first day ever flying with a gun. It was so easy. Yeah. I fretted over this for two weeks. I read stuff on the internet. I looked up locks. I well, I did all this crap. Got a good gun case. You pack that gun case well. Done. Game over. Yeah, the, all the gun cases that are in that closet right there. I mean, there's um, got like a few SKBs in there. They're good cases. Um, yeah, it's yeah. It wouldn't be a thing. It would be paying for an extra carry on for like my match pack. That'd be about. You know, so there's there's three things you're checking. You're checking your gun, you're checking your luggage, like your clothes, normal clothes, and then you're checking your match pack. And today I checked my rifle, I checked my match pack, and I carried on all my clothes. Okay. So when I went and added it up, the the first bag, the if I bought a normal ticket, the first bag was an additional forty dollars, the second bag was an additional fifty dollars or something. So ninety bucks. Ninety bucks total for your bags. But then, because the rifle is is oversized, it's a hundred dollars extra on top of that. So it's one hundred ninety. And then, because my rifle case is over fifty pounds, it's an extra two hundred dollars. Holy shit! Do people pay that? So what I did was bought a first class ticket, which is almost the exact same price, but I automatically get two check bags, so I don't have to pay any baggage overages, and I fly first class. Yeah, you fly. Yeah, in in your first class, you know. Yeah. And the nosebleeds with us, right? Common folk. And today was the first time I've ever flown first class. So only time, every time, I, only time I've ever done it was when I was in uniform one time, and they like midway through the flight fucking bumped me up and just on a puddle jumper plane. There was like literally no difference between. I was like, why am I even up here? There's no difference where the fuck I was sitting back there. Um, it was from Wichita Falls, Texas to Dallas. Dude, that was. I remember how. You know, you couldn't listen to a podcast in the length of time you were on a plane back then. Uh, but uh, Started out to Raleigh, 30-minute flight time a day. Yeah, right, exactly. That was the, the, when I was trying to figure out your flight schedule, I was like, maybe 
maybe he's flying into Charlotte. I said, why would they fucking lay him over in Charlotte? Why would that plane not come all the way 30 minutes past Charlotte into RDU straight? Like, why is that not a direct flight? Uh, I figured you were flying out of Des Moines, um, but I was trying to figure out. I, I was I kind of freaked out because I looked at your, I went back and looked at your text message when I asked you your, your flight. You said in or flight in one, flight out 945. I think I think I gave you a wrong number there. I think my flight took off from Charlotte at one. From, from Charlotte, yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So I was thinking, I, was, I thought it was arriving at one. I thought it was too when I texted you. That. But then I, I see, I didn't know you had a layover. So I said, "Oh shit! Did he say? Did he leave like Iowa at one? Like one your time <laughs> would have been two my time. Yeah. So that have been like." I'm like, uh, am I going to be in Raleigh all day? And I was like, no, nah, there ain't no way. There ain't no way he done that. There's, I don't need to know what time he left Iowa. I need to know what time he gets here. He knows that. Now, it's got to be right. Maybe they're just late. But no, so your flight landed in Charlotte at 1 or took off from Charlotte at 1. Okay, that makes sense. So it was about, what, what time did you land? Like 1? 1.45. 45-ish. Yeah, and then you had to go through all the stuff to get your gun and all that stuff. Um. Yeah, there was something else we were going to talk about. Well, there's, there's a lot of stuff we can talk about. Well, hey, look, this is the... It's speed the, uh, drop factor? The, yeah, okay. Talk speed. about that. That shit was cool. That shit, I was really impressed by that. And everyone's heard... Well, not everybody, I guess. I've heard, and a lot of people have heard about fucking Todd Hodnett's speed drop stuff. And he likes to talk numbers fast and and all that. Yeah, get a pad or whatever and roll it over. But it... uh. You know, this chart is like made it very, like you said, dummy proof. And yeah. it well, made in, it. In this chart's how you find that number. That's my buttons okay. for that thing. So so here's here's what I want to do to make people understand what speed drop factor is. Okay. For my BR, my BR is a 2.1 speed drop factor number, and it works anywhere from 350 to 800. Okay, so what I want you to do is give me a yardage. And I'm going to tell you what my what my drop is. I've actually got I've got my ballistic chart here, so you can double check me on it. Okay. So and you said it was from between three fifty and three fifty, and there's eight hundred there. Uh, Six seventy five. Six seventy five. Um, four point six. Going to be real close to four point six. Four. It's four six. Four six. Right on the number. Yep. Just that quick. I didn't look at anything. I did one. Quick equation in my in my brain, and I know my. Well, it's just subtraction. Yeah, subtraction. What? Give me another one. Uh, seven seventy five. Five point six. So within two tenths. Yep. This this system is not perfect. Yeah, it's not meant to be. Right. It's meant to get you on play in a quick, fast, and hurry. Right. When you don't have your dope in front of you right. for that target. Right. So speed drop factor. There's going to be a certain range of flight for most calibers where the drop is very consistent. Every 100 yards, it's 8 tenths, 9 tenths. Usually right around 1 mil is actually where it's at. Real close to 1 mil for every 100 yards. Yeah. Um, and that's what speed drop factor is, figuring out what that range is and then using the fringe ends of it to, to add more distance to it. So mm -hmm. um, to find your speed drop factor, what you do is take the yardage, so like 600 yards, just starting with a number. And I'm going to take the 6 from the front of that, 6 minus whatever my drop is. 
So six minus my drop. Um, what's my drop there on my chart? Between 600? Yeah. 3.8. Okay, 3.8. I should have been able to figure that out, but I want the actual, the real numbers why I asked you. Right. That. So six minus 3.8 gives me 2.2. Mm -hmm. So my speed drop factor for 600 yards is 2.2. Now I could do 700 yards and see what that speed drop factor is, and 800 and see what that speed drop factor is, and 500 and see what that speed drop factor is. And what you're gonna see is a lot of numbers really close to 2.2, 2.1, 2.3, and you'll be able to figure out what your speed drop factor is. Now, online, on a Google Sheet, I have that chart all made up, like the, the, the dope chart that you're holding. Mm -hmm. And on that Google Sheet, if you fill in the front dope chart, and go to sheet two, the speed drop factor chart automatically fills out and it gives you this big fancy color chart thing that I was showing you today, where then it gives you your options. Your numbers are your speed drop factor for my 6BR could be 2.2, 2.1, 2.0, or 2 or 1.9. And I can look through that and figure out which one works best for me, choosing how much deviation I'll allow, how much error I'll allow. Right. So I usually like to pick a number so in the center of my range, I'm like um, one-tenth high. And on the edges of the range, I'm about two-tenths low. So that's what works out for my 6BR to be any yardage from 350 to 800. I subtract the number 2.1 from the first number of the yardage, and I get my number. And actually, I would use the first two, two numbers. So like 775, 7.7 .7 minus 2.1 is 5.6. That's what I would use. Here's a couple different ways we can use this number. Okay. One is we can do the mental math. And this is the way I use it most of the time, the mental math. We're on a stage at a match, and I didn't write my dope out and put it on my rifle because I got one target at one distance. Okay. As long as my dope's dialed on my scope right when I start, I don't have to worry about dialing anything, right? So I don't have a data, data sheet with me. But at the beginning of the stage, my brain says, shit, did I dial my dope? I can ask you, Hey, what's the yardage of that target? I don't have to ask you, hey, what's my dope? No, I can say, what's the yardage of the target? Oh, it's 550. 550 minus 2, 3.5 minus 1, 3.4. Check my scope. Oh, it's 3.3 it's .3 on the scope. Yep, I dialed the right information. At least I know I'm right in the ballpark. Let's hammer away. You, if it is off a tenth or two, you can correct from there. If you wanted to, yep. But also knowing if what's on my scope is really close to the number but not perfect, I'm probably gonna leave on my scope what was there because I know the drop scale, speed, a speed drop scale number has error in it. Right, so yeah, it's not perfect. It's not perfect, it, it has some It looks close, we're gonna right. rock with that and see, but you're verifying that it's close because you know what that, yeah. that is via your drop factor. So another way we can use it is if we, we can start using like a bullet drop compensator system in our standard mill reticle. Okay, so if I can take my scope and dial it down, so under my zero to 2.1, mm -hmm. then in my reticle tree below my reticle at 300, at three mils is my 300 yards. Four mils is my 400 yard. Six mils is 600 yards. Mm -hmm. So now I've created a bullet drop scale. Yeah, with the standard mill reticle. Yeah, I've, right. seen, I've seen that, yeah. Right. But you, but you have to be able to dial down that 2.1. Yeah, it's the same thing. You're just incorporating that into your into your turret. Right. Yeah, and that is... I wonder if you can do that... I wonder if you can do that on my scope. So, yeah. fun thing at a match. You're at a match, right? You've got a troop line that is 
four, five, six, seven hundred yards. If you can dial your turret down to down that 2.1 number for me, maybe for you it's a 2.2 or a 2.5, whatever it is, then you can actually use the four mil mark, five mil mark, six mil mark, seven mil mark in your holdovers and not have weird fucked up numbers. Yeah. Right? Yeah, just using that okay, becoming your crosshairs. So that's one way we can, that's the second way we can use it. Third way we can use it is if we can, if your if your scope is set to zero zero, everything's zero, both dials say zero. You take your elevation turret, you loosen your set screws and slip it to 2.1. Okay, for me it would be 2.1, and then tighten my set screws. Now my dial turret just became a, a yardage turret. Yeah. And if I dial it to Five mils. That's five. I just five, died five hundred yards. Yeah, right. So something that works really well for like competition dynamics or NRL hunter. Yeah. If I range a target, I can easily get the. There's dope no need to, to go target. back and refer to your written dope right. that you have or orchestral or. or no. There's right. no need for that. So if I have speed drop factor and I understand the gun mile per hour system, I can shoot. 80% of a match without ever having to get a Kestrel out. Well, unless you want to read wind speed, right? Measure wind speed. Yeah, right? yeah, but for dope. But dope for dope. Reasons. Or or get a, a chart or anything out. It's all memorized by knowing two numbers. Six mile an hour gun, 2.1 speed drop. Game yeah. Over. Yeah, I, I like it. I like it for the sake of having a mental backup. Yeah. So that, that's why, and, and for you guys listening, I'm, I know I mentioned it about... When I took the uh, when I took the modern day sniper course with with Phil and Kalen, the thing that I took home with me the most wasn't even something that was like part of the curriculum. It was what what affected me right then and there. What I could take with me and and use it to it's it's you know use it right then and there from here on out day one was the way Kalen wrote out his dope card like this four stage like because we we shot some some mock stages and stuff like that and he's like i said let me let me see your your dope card there and he showed to me and i said break it down he showed me how he did his dope cards uh for like four stage and then opened up his arm board and showed me that his backup dope this is not what like he uses a kestrel you know, a horn or a phone. His his Hornady Ford off on his phone. He uses that if he's at a match. He's in his phone or a Kestrel or whatever, and getting his dope there. But if for some reason, I don't know, battery dies or he didn't write that on there or it was a wrong dope, whatever. All he's gonna do is open that onboard up, and all he has information. Every he's got dope for every twenty yards from. X to Y, I don't know. I don't remember. That is, that's not important. I mean, I don't need 1,500-yard dope when it's, the match is only no longer than 1,000. But, and then he has, he'll have, like, he's different colors. Everything's coordinated with the different pins he used. And then, like, a wind call for this and this, these two wind speeds. I'm like, that. that is good for someone like me. I, I, I need that myself for if if I drop the ball with my dope either on a stage or you know or write the wrong dope or forget or I got dope for I got the 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 
stage dope card, um, you know, from the last stage and not, yep. not new one. I've done that. I'm like, yep. oh, shit. Yep. I did it. Pick my first match at Pig River. I did that. It was like 700 something yards. And off the top of my head, it was it was my BR. Top of my head, I couldn't think for the life of me of what my 700, whatever that yardage was, dope was. And I was literally trying to walk up like from two mils up, just seeing it splash up and walk it all the way up. And it just did not pan out. I had other shit going on too with the props that I was shooting off of, and it was just not fucking working. And I was like, Jesus Christ, I, I could have I turned could have turned around and said, What's the yardage? Run and your then speed drop number or run your arm mark. Um, it, okay, it's it's seven fifteen. Boom, look up. All right, there's seven twenty. There we go. Hit it. Or in that case, no not even really needing that, right. but have that no, and just doing a quick math problem in your head, boom, you're done. Seven fifteen, five mils. I'm in. Yeah. I mean, it's it, that's uh, my my six five Creedmoor is a, a two point five. My six BR is a two point one. So if you're going to be in a ca- competition caliber, it's going to fall somewhere in in the middle of that somewhere. Yeah, yeah. but but yeah, and the the interesting part about what you did in that class and the, what you brought home from it was something that Kalen probably didn't even think was a big deal. Yeah, it was not part of the yeah. of the syllabus or it was curriculum or whatever. It was, it was every not. day for him, and it was normal for him. But he'd never stop to think about. Maybe shooters don't quite do it the way I do and need that. Yeah, so, it is not how I, it's not. Yeah. I mean, my normal dope cards are very rudimentary. I mean, it was like yardage, dash, dope, the correction. And then I, I might would put a one win call. Yep. Right. He's got a bracket. Right. Of and, wind calls. And you saw the cards I gave you today, right? Yeah. So I made I made stickers that go on to the the cold tack what cheat sheet. Cheat sheet, yeah. Those little boards. Yep. So I went to Vista Print, drew up the sticker thing. So I actually have yardage, drop, and then three columns for wind. So I can write out your low, average, and high. Yeah. So. And that's basically what he's got. And what I did find, so this this one day match this past weekend was the first match that I've got to actually utilize this. Um, and what I what I noticed was in conditions like we were shooting in this past weekend, where I like I mentioned to you, it was anywhere from fifteen to twenty eight miles an hour, and never the same. I was like looking, okay, so what, how do I bracket this? Because I'm looking at my flag right here and it's standing on its end going that way. I look away, take a sip of water and look back at it. It's standing up on its end the other way. I'm like, how the fuck do you bracket that? You know? So I, what I literally did, I said, okay, well, I've seen it look that way, blow that way more. I look like going through like kind of like what wind will be at, at that. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to put two of them. For a right wind hold, and I want to one for a left wind hold in case that bit switches or whatever. That's what I'm thinking it's going to be. It never worked out, but I mean, how can there's just some things that some situations in this because you are you're the only competitor that you have to compete against is Mother Nature. You're going to shoot how you're going to shoot, and so is the guy shooting in front of you or behind you. Right. I'm not shooting against him. Even if I'm in, in contention to win, I can't affect him. If we're playing tennis, oh, I can affect what he does. I can't affect what he does here because he's not shooting at me. Right. Right? Thank God. 
So it's, you know, if we're playing, if we're playing tennis, I can chop one short of the net and when you're at the back of the court and hopefully you can't run up in time to do it. Or I could spike one down your throat. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. This is not, this is a game of you versus Mother Nature is what it is. Because your, if there was no wind, it's literally math. Pull, pull a good trigger. Pull. That's it. With wind, it's a competitor that you're not always going to beat. And, and you know, rarely do you beat her a lot. Um, and so you you have to you have to be able to accept the fact that there are going to be some things that you can't prepare for. I can't prepare and write thirty wind calls on a card, and then pick the right ones for each shot and not right. miss. It's not going to happen when you've got that big a variance yep. in wind change, of direction, and mile an hour. Right. It's going to be what's going to be. You it, it then becomes almost like you hope it holds and better than the next guy's wind does. Right. right. And so. You're never no no person on the planet is going to be able to tell you how to hit every damn target. Even if you pulled the absolute perfect trigger pulls, like a robot that pulls a perfect trigger pull every time on a machine, that wind is what's going to. Right. There's no way anybody can tell you how to make a perfect wind call every time. That's the one. Like Phil says in in the class, you know, what's a wind call? He said one big ass fucking guess. That's what he writes it uh, the acronym for it. Right. Well, once we send the first round, now it's a mathematical equation. Yeah. Now, now the science is out there. You know the answer. You just have to correct for it. it and fast enough. Right. Correct for it fast enough. Is yep. put, do your best to measure with that ruler and then send the next bullet into what you hope is the same exact world that the first one was sent in. Right. But the what the truth of the matter is, and you'll see that this weekend, that that world changes very fast depending on where you are. Okay. Um, and it can be a, you're literally, you can hold, some of these, it's so weird. Uh, you'll see it. Is This is a, this one I'm about to suggest is actually something that happens at Pig River more than at Frontline. But you can literally have a straight up hold dead center at a thousand and yet hold you know, a half a mil at five. Really? Dude, if, if, if it's a little bit direction change yep. or whatever, it's it's weird, dude. It happens. Um, one wind call is very rarely a great indication of what a wind call will be on the next target because the terrain feature, because of the, like I said, the switching direction of wind and gusting of it. Um you know, no, no, the southeast doesn't have thirty mile an hour winds on any given weekend like they do out west. But we've got a different set of difficulties to deal yep. with. Um, but it's, uh, I mean, that's what keeps you coming back. If you hit every target, why even fuck keep doing it? You know, yeah. It's that one, it's that one bitch that you're trying to figure out is that is that wind and and whatever and it's fun. And you you and your charts have. Have given you know people just more tools in the toolbox yeah, to help a system to help beat that to help beat. No one's going to perfect it. I mean, no one on the planet is smart enough, or could ever be smart enough to be able to nail it to give you a correct win call for every situation. But but hopefully we have an educated guess for the next one. 
Right. You know? Yeah. And and hopefully you can be able to take the the data that you have found by sending one. Right. Believe in that bullet. Right. And then and applying that to and the this next is, call. This is where like the gun mile power system can be worked the other way. Mm-hmm. Once you hit the target, you can figure out what that wind speed is. Yep. You know, and then apply that to the next target. Usually, what I like to do is apply it to the next target plus another mile or two per hour. Right. Always giving it a little bit more. Yeah, for for, for further distance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and I, I, that's well, not mile per hour, but more like a tenth or two is what I'll do. If it's a, if I end up squaring it up at eight hundred, if it's at nine nine fifty, I'll cheat a little more to to the right. side of the prevailing Stop. wind and yeah. hope. And then and it does. And a lot of times, most times, I'd say it it does play out like that. Um, but it's, it's, it's not, it's not a perfect science, but there is science to it there that can help. So, um, what else, what other fun charts do you got over there? Oh, let's see. I got one for, uh, um, lead for movers. So on that Google sheet that I have, mm-hmm. if you fill all your data in and then you go to the mover sheet and you put in your time of flight, it automatically calculates your holds and how to calculate how fast a mover is moving. So that's really, which I mean, there's, I only get to shoot a mover like once a year, but that's, that's a really invaluable tool. Cause there are some people that shoot matches that have like, they don't, they rarely shoot a match that don't have a mover in it, you know? Right. Which I'm jealous of that. I mean, those are everybody like they should have that too. Right. Yeah. You know, it's expensive yeah. ass target, $12,000 target system. You know, right. everyone like to get on that. Movers are fun. Movers are. They can be frustrating. I finally learned how to do. Um, trapping and tracking together. Track bushing. Trap bushing. Yeah. Oh my God. Changed how I shoot movers so much. Yeah. And I had a conversation uh, about this very same thing about the difference in tracking and ambushing and track bushing. And I was told I was crazy. I think track bushing is a good term. I've never heard it before. But that's, so, that's about right. Yeah, but you, you get you get why I said that, though, because it makes sense, because you're using a, kind of a hybrid of both, where the person to whom I was talking to about it said that it was just tracking. I was like, no, nah, it's not tracking. Tracking is the reticle is constantly moving with that target. Ambushing is you sit here and wait until that target hits a certain point in your reticle and you send the bullet. Track bushing is I'm constantly moving out front to where move out front, stop, bang, move out, stop, front, bang. And then moving and keeping the reticle moving to where you can get more shots on target in one sweep of the, to- of the, of the mover, right? One direction before it turns back the other way, you get more, you get more shot opportunities than you would be if you were, if you were ambushing the target, but yet it is easier to do than tracking and to, to break a shot off at the right time than a pure tracking method. Ambushing. I mean, yeah. Ambushing. No, 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 no. You get more opportunities than ambushing, yeah. but it's easier to make that trigger pull in the right place than it is tracking. Cause okay. a tracking, you're constantly moving. Boom, boom. You know, it's harder to do. Than it is if I'm out front, boom, out front, stop, boom. You know, waiting for it to hit that point. Right. And my methods, I guess, a little bit different. What I do is I jump in front of the target. Yeah. Like I'm going to ambush it. Now when the target gets there, I track it for about a mil, mil and a half is it. 
and then send it and then jump in front of it again. And you're, but you so you're, you're getting in front of it and then continuing to move with it for a second, for like a mill, you said. Yeah, mill, mill and a half track and sending the round in that mill, mill and a half while I'm tracking it and then jumping ahead of it. So kind of an ambush and tracking. Because originally when I started doing it, I thought tracking was, like you said, staying on the target the whole time. Well, you're in the prone position and the target's moving 10 mils. You yeah. can't track, right? Yeah, not not purely like that. Right. It would be very so have difficult. To, to, hey, that's why I got painting tripods, you know, yeah. uh, bipods. I, I yeah. yeah, I hate bipods that pan. But in the chart there, um, online, there's a good resource if you want to print a chart, put your data in, it'll calculate all that stuff for you. I've got a big Google sheet that's free for anybody who wants to use it. You just got to jump on Sniper's Hide to get a link to it. Or if you want to email me, ask me, whatever it is, um, it's out there for anyone to use. It's got the front page is your drop chart. So printed data for your drop chart. And I take it right off of my Hornady Ford off. I just take information right off there, type it into the Excel program. That's the Google sheet. Use that. Um, the second sheet is that speed drop factor. It calculates it for you. Third sheet is um, is density altitude. So it calculates a density altitude for you, and then you can put that in your ballistic app and then write down all of your drop numbers for density altitude. Mm -hmm. uh, the fourth page, the next page is the mover speed. And the last page, oh, the last page is actually like a risk coach size printouts for for your density altitudes. So you got right. all yeah. printed out, everything done. So all that's in the Google Sheet. All that's in the Google Sheet. So here's what we'll do. When we get done recording this, we'll hop online, we'll get on Sniper's Hide, we'll find that link, yep. and then we'll put that link in the show notes to where someone can just copy and paste sure. it and yep. go that route. Sounds good. Yeah. So I know you want to talk dry fire before we before we go we're, we're we an hour 45 we're good we're an hour 45 into it's gonna be another hour 45 oh we ain't gotta do hour 45 on it we have to do an hour 45 but we can uh but yeah we can definitely talk about drop because dry fire is one of those things that you don't i mean i'm i'm fortunate i've got a hundred yard range here at my house and i've got out to 500 yards here at my house i, I understand there's people talking to listen to us right now they're in an apartment building right now or Live in a little tiny, you or know, cookie cutter neighborhood. It's Iowa. It's nine degrees. Right. And, you know, first of all, it's free. Ammo shortage is a thing. Component shortage is a thing. Fucking time's a thing. You know, time shortage is a thing. Yep. And then property shortage is a thing. The, the ability to do, do that. I mean, yeah, you could go throw as many rounds down range you want at a range on a weekend. But, you know, this is something you can do in between those times. And it's free. Um and not all dry fire is created equal. I think if you're pulling the trigger, regardless of how deep you get into it or not, pulling the trigger on a target is better than nothing, better than doing nothing at all. But you're definitely not getting your full potential of what you can be doing with dry fire just by, all right, my, and, I, and I'm guilty of it too because I'm lazy because I've got a barricade sitting right there and half time my rifle's on my rifle was on it when you got yep. here today uh, I, I'm guilty of it but I'll have to like make myself okay alright I need to actually work on on something building you only have to pull a trigger building the position breaking it down rebuilding it how about how about way before that so I really had to think through dry fire because I got a brand new rifle in December it gets cold in Iowa in December I'm really not going to go do a whole lot of shooting in December. Um, so <clears throat> one of the things I had to think about it is I knew I'm coming to this match. 
I don't want to go out and shoot in the cold, but I need to figure out how my rifle runs, how it fits me. How do I fit the rifle? How do I work with it? So what I did um, was really broke dry fire down into the fundamentals and like bare bones fundamentals to work on individual things. So with a new rifle for the, for the first couple times I'd walk up to it, the only thing I would do is practice where's my trigger finger go and what's my grip look like. As simple as that and getting my brain and my body to remember, this is my grip for this rifle. Well, not only that, but, but back like you were talking about, like even before the shot is how are you manipulating your equipment before the timer goes off? Like what, what hand are you holding your bag in? Right. I, I know for like when I, especially it was a big thing when I was running the, uh, the mini fortune cookie, I would, I've and it helped out a lot. I would manipulate that bag in my hand to get the kind of the sand in the bag, like evenly distributed on each end of the bag. Cause it's kind of a pain in the ass. Like if you're holding, so these bags have hooks like loops on yep. each end. If you were to hold that bag by one of those loops, what does that do? All the sand runs to one end of the bag. Well, it's not very conducive to try to manipulate that sand while on the barricade and all while you're holding your 20 plus pound rifle, it's better to have that bag, if you will, just more, you, it's, it's malleable. You move it around to get the sand to where, okay, where I'm holding now, I'm gonna flop it right on that barricade or that prop or whatever. And it's gonna be the best version of itself to lend itself for stability when I put my rifle on it. Right. Instead of it, like, okay, well, shit, I got all this fucking sand at the front of the mountain. My bag wants to roll over the backside of the barricade. Yep. Have you ever had that happen? Oh, yeah. It's a pain in the ass. Yep. And I've had a bag fall off of it before. Um, so, you know, when I first started, that shit happened. I was like, oh, man, this is something's got to give because this is, this is bullshit. Um, you know, but just this, that. Okay. Now, build your position. All right. Now, if you're going to go from here, this level to this level, what is the best sequence of moving your equipment to the next level is it picking up the bag and rifle all at one sometimes it is so i do that like a prs barricade tomorrow you will if we shoot the prs barricade tomorrow you will not see me going from the first like kneeling position you won't see me pick the rifle up then the bag bag down rifle because i'm using a a, uh, a heavy fill um medium game changer mm -hmm. i don't lay it where like the, the 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 mouth end the bottom of the bag is over the board i mean over the uh, the barricade i lay it sideways so it's one big solid thing i'll pick the whole rifle and bag together and move it it saves time and it's one motion economy of motion and i i do get a a very stable position from that bag by doing that but that's on a prs skill stage barricade Okay, now, before we go someplace else, I want to break down what you just said you would do. You figure out how to move it, right? Mm -hmm. Let's break that down into individual parts even further that people can practice during dry fire. This is where I think dry fire is extremely overlooked. You know, people like to do the gross stuff. Right. If you break it down to the minutia, you can learn so much more. For example... When you go to pick up the rifle and the bag together, 
How do you grab the bag? Do you wrap your hand under it, around the front? Do you make sure the bag's positioned away so you can grab one of the loops? Like the really small minutia about how that left hand for you is gonna grab the bag and the rifle. Now, what's the right hand doing? Is it grabbing the rifle a different way? Is it staying on the grip? Are you chicken winging the rifle? Like just in what you're talking about, choosing how to move the bag with the rifle, you can break down way in deep into how am I gonna move the bag with the rifle? Follow what I'm saying? Yeah, and a really good way to do that, to figure out, like if you don't know the answer, I know the answer to that question, but if you don't know the answer to that question, is trying it in multiple ways in dry fire where it doesn't cost you a thing and you're here in your house or garage right. or basement by yourself. Um, and it, you, you feel, okay, what feels right, but not only what feels right, what is going to give me, what's going to put my rifle in the best position when I'm done. If I pick it up this way, see, I'm explaining the way I do it. So if I've got the bag laying on a barricade and the rifle's on top, I will put my left hand underneath at the front of the bag with my thumb wrapped around the, the top of the handguard or barrel or whatever, which right, you know, my new AI chassis has got the handguard on top. Um, handguard there, and the right hand's on the exact opposite, and on the opposite side. It's going around the back side in front of my mag well, grabbing the bag, and thumb goes basically underneath the scope, whatever. I, so they go in opposite directions, one's front, one's back from each side. Of and the pick bag. Of yeah, the bag. Yeah, of the bag. And I've got fingers underneath the underneath the bag. I've got thumbs on top of the rifle, kind of basically like C-clamp with both hands from each side and move it from there. But if that doesn't work for you, that's where you figure it out. Yep. To where, because when I put it there and do it that way and I get behind the rifle... I'm I'm having to do very little adjusting after that. That's the, what your that's what your goal should be there. A is economy in, in your time, and B of time of, of movement, but also in time of getting the rifle back to where it's at its balance point, it's stable, and hopefully close to your target, pointed at your target. So you it's up to you if you listen to this, you may not get that same, those three things checked off by doing it the way I do it. Yeah, but it's a little different. That's, well, your rifle, well, the biggest thing, your bags are different and your rifle's different because it's different. Yeah. That's different than I would if I was using that wax canvas uh, mini forcer cookie or that solo sack sitting beside it right there. I've got them all. Other than the, other than the fucking trouse, fucking tactical utter. I hate that fucking bag. I'll, no, we don't even get in that. Um, but you, you know, every one of those bags is going to, they're going to feel different, operate different, they're shaped different, they're filled with something different. Um, but you, it's up to you with your equipment, your rifle. All right, well, how high is your scope? Can you fit your thumb in between the bottom of your scope and on the top of your, your scope rail? Um, you know, can you put, can you do that? Maybe you can't. Uh, maybe you need, maybe you're you need you're not strong enough you need both hands on the rifle to pick up put in a vertical position to then bounce it kind of like on your hip uh the buttstock on your hip then move it maybe you can't do i we i don't know i don't know your situation so that's up to you to figure out in dry fire that's a perfect place to do it right you know and, and for me like for this match i had to go way back to the beginning i had to figure out what's my grip what's my hand placement What's my, what's my rifle placement in the shoulder? 
What's what's my cheek placement? So is this a new chassis? Like this is, this is a brand new rifle. Uh, everything, everything from end to end. Okay. New chassis, new action, new barrel. The only thing original is the same scope that had my rifle before. Yeah. So this winter, last three months, two months, I had to break down all the fundamentals into dry fire, so that when I was on the range on a warm day in February, that I could get the most out of my twenty-five or thirty rounds that I could get off before it got too damn cold. Yeah. So. Um, well, and another thing too, forget the rifle. Put the right, okay, put the rifle down, build your position, get behind the scope, find your target. Now, don't move, but take your head off the off the rifle. Look where your feet are. Right. Where are, are your toes squared to the target or yep. do you got, you know, your your uh right leg behind your left leg cuz you're bladed off. Right. Well, you've all heard me mention and I'm sure you've heard it mentioned other other places as well. The PRS needs to change its name to like precision spot your impacts. That's yep. the name because that is the name of the game. You're not going to lend yourself in the be in the best position to do that if you're you know bladed off the rifle and recoil is then exploiting that angle you're introducing with your shoulders. Um, you know, it starts at your hips. You know, it's it's harder to get your shoulders out of whack if your hips and feet or square i mean it just your body will i mean your shoulders need to you need to check make sure your shoulders are square too but in a standing position you know when we're talking about positional shooting in the standing if your feet and if feet and hips are pretty square your shoulders are pretty pretty square it's safe to say your shoulders are square too so that's a good place to check start at least start check is your feet yeah are your toes in line with each other mm-hmm. and then are they perpendicular to your target and then perpendicular to your rifle. So all of these, all this stuff can all be figured out in dry right, fire. Right. But you have to mentally take the time to break it down oh, yeah. into the minutia to really perfect it. And that's where dry fire, that's where as a new shooter or an experienced shooter, you can find a new utility for dry fire. Yeah. I certainly found it this year. Holy cow. I, I actually have maybe 30 rounds of positional shooting on this rifle. Mm-hmm. Like that's as much as I actually live fire practice with it. And now I'm going to try to run it at a match. So we'll see how tomorrow goes. Right. Yeah. But, um, also, also there are top shooters out there that say dry fire is great. And, and I'm with them on this dry fire is great, but you do have to live fire as well to understand the recoil impulse and how you recoil and manage recoil and those mm-hmm. things. So don't, I don't want the people to screw it too far with them saying, all you got to do is dry fire. No, you have to live fire too. But oh yeah, dry fire is where you can learn a lot of things and then vet them or perfect them with live fire. Well, in in learning them is one thing. Figuring these things out is the first step. Figuring these things to where, like what we what we just mentioned, like okay, well obviously something's not right. My my toes aren't lined up, so I need to make sure that my toes are in line with each other and then perpendicular to target. Okay, that's great. You you've noticed that and you know you just need to work on. But you don't, this goes back to like the whole mental aspect of the game is you don't want to be thinking about that in a match. Right. Well, how do you do those things without thinking about them? It's not practice makes perfect. It's perfect practice makes perfect. That's that you have to do that that many times and commit it to not just memory, but subconscious memory to where when, if I go and run a PRS barricade, I'm not thinking about my feet. I'm not thinking about 
you know, my shoulders. I'm not thinking about that and the other because I've done it so much. That's the hope. You've done it so much that you're doing those things without thinking about them to where you're thinking about, you know, one, maybe two things. Thinking about the wind and thinking about your next move. Yeah. And and you don't want, all right. That that's why like when I when I when I get behind a rifle and I'm about to take a shot, when I close that bolt, I think of three things. Breathe, squeeze, watch. Breathe. I'm I'm a very egregious offender of holding my breath when I shoot. Yep. I don't I don't Jacob makes a good point about it. it says the only time you need to hold your breath when you're in the water. I don't know why like shooting is like the only thing you do. I don't think it is the only thing to do. I think anything that requires balance and precision. If I were to throw like throw darts right now, I'd probably hold my breath when I'm doing it. I don't know why, but we that's what we do. We think in our minds subconsciously maybe it thinks it makes you more still. If you're not well, you really are doing that when you're breathing right because you're you're breaking your shot at the bottom of your respiratory pause. So technically, you're not breathing when you fire the shot, but you're also not holding your breath. Right. It's they're the same, but they're different. But, you know, and then squeeze. I, I want to make sure it's not just, you know, the proper trigger control and then the follow through with the trigger, pinning it to the back. I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about I want to make sure when I say squeeze, what I think of is that. But also, I want to make sure I am breaking that trigger when I want it to be broke. And not, and because this is something I probably, probably tomorrow, I'll break a shot and I promise you before that target is or, or that bullet gets to the target, if I broke it wrong, I'll say something like, like damn it, before the bullet gets there. Yep. You know, because I know where you it broke. Messed it up. I know where it broke and it was not where I wanted it to be. And then look, that is take the time to then receive the data that your bullet is trying to give you whenever it gets to the target, whether it be it hits it squared up, your money, your win calls money, you caught the left edge of the plate. I need to cheat a little, or at least, at least half of the plate's width right. Not just give it another tenth. No, give it another two tenths or three tenths if that's how wide the target, if it's allowed it to. Um, you know, pay attention to that. Instead of just racking the bolt, as soon as you do it, oh, the gun's broke because it went off, fix it and run the bolt. Or hurry up and move to the next position. No. Pay attention because that's what's going to help guarantee, at least will help guarantee, uh, your a next hit is that data. Whether you barely caught the plate, whether you squared it up, or whether you blew it a half a mil off the plate. You know, that's the only three things that I really want to think about. I don't even want to think too much about the course of fire because I have ran it in my head before even picking up my rifle multiple times to where I no longer have to think about that. And that is one thing I have improved on is if there's like multiple, if it's a dynamic stage where there's multiple targets and multiple positions, that used to be like a fucking crux for me. Like it needs to be one target, five positions or five targets, one position, right? That's what I needed. I've got to the point now to where I have mentally ran that stage to where I don't have that problem as much because I don't have to think about it now. It's not like, okay, I'm here at this position, so I need to shoot at this target. No, I already know that because I've, I've done it 
I've done it 10 times. I've shot this stage 10 times already mm -hmm. in my head. And it goes to, I don't know if you've ever heard the story. There's a guy that he had gone to prison. He played golf, but he went to prison. He was in prison for a while. But every day, he played a round of golf every day in his head. And ain't no golf in prison. It, well, maybe there is for some. I don't know, some uh, club fed. But no, there's no golf in prison, right? He mentally played 18 holes every shot. His tee shot, his second shot, his approach shot, his putt. The first time when he got out of prison, the first time he got out on a course with a golf club in his hand since before he went to prison, he shot scratch. He shot oh. bar. That is like mental, that's a steel trap of a mind. And I think there's a lot to be said about that, about how that same thing can be you know, correlated over to what we do. Yep. Now, we don't have to do shoot matches in prison in our minds. So just run the stage multiple times in your mind before it's your turn to shoot. And you get that kind of same benefit. And it's really helped me a lot. Like I've, I've literally not knock on wood tomorrow. I'll fucking do it. But I have not had that issue in a while because I have. That's fixed it. Those are the problems and that fixed it. So, um, yeah, the dry fire doing that is going to help solidify to where you have less to think, but the more dry fire you do, and do the fundamentals correctly, that's something that you then no longer have to think about because it is the same as breathing. It becomes ingrained. Right. Do you think when you walk, when you're walking, are you thinking about putting your left foot in front of your right? No. Nope. No, you're just walking because you've done it so much. You, just, you don't have to think about it. I got to go over there and just fucking walk, right? Well, that's, that's basically what we're wanting all the fundamentals to be. And... The course of fire because not because you've practiced it so much at home. No, you got your course of fire the night before the first day or the day of the first day, but you've ran it so much at that stage. Forget all the other stages, how good you did, how bad you did, what, what you did, what the course of fire was at those stages. The next stage is your only stage. And you, and you mentally work through, I'm going to do this position with this build, shoot this target. Mm -hmm. I'm going to move to this position with this. I'm going to build my position and shoot this target. And you mentally built that system for this. You've never actually done it. You've mentally built position, target, position, target, position, target. So when you go do it, it's the decisions are made. It's like you've watched a GoPro footage video of someone or yourself running the stage. Yep. In your mind, that's what these look like. Like the helmet or the, the head uh, fucking rig for a, a GoPro where you're seeing everything like first person yep. shit. Yep. That's what it needs to look like in your head is that you ran it with a GoPro on and now you're watching the video of you doing it and doing it right and hitting every target. And, and it's called visualization. Absolutely. Visualizing the stage before you do it. Visualize the bullet hitting the fucking target. It's not just getting the course of fire right. Like that's the beautiful thing about this is that it's not just, okay, make sure I get my target order right, get my position right, do my fundamentals right. No, no, no. Visualize the bullet leaving the barrel and hitting the target in the middle of the target, of every target. You cleaned that stage 10 times already. Yep. If you do that, that does not guarantee you're going to clean the stage. 
but you are setting yourself up better prepared to clean that stage than holy shit I hit nine. I got one shot left. I'm gonna clean this bitch. Oh my oh, god! Dude, every time. You know how many times I've done that, dude? <laughs> dude, I told a story at the Glass Guardian that we shot in uh, at um, Pig River. I forgot what stage it was. I think it was the PRS Barricade, and I was. It was the day two where you're with your partner or whatever, right? And me and Jeff were in the same squad, and we were actually side by side in, in our ranking for the day one. And we got paired up with two buddies that came together from Ohio. We got paired up with them because they got backed up one-to-one, -one, right? So cool. it, kinda, it was really cool how it worked out. Yeah. But literally, I moved to the last position. I'm clean. I moved to the last position, first round, squared it up. As soon as I racked that bolt, I heard Jeff's partner, so my partner's buddy, heard him say, Damn, he's going to clean this. Just dropped it right off the bottom. I turned around. He said, I'm sorry, man. I should have said that out loud. I said, it is what it is, man. But no, visualizing cleaning that stage is going to set you up to have a greater probability of actually doing it. You don't want to get to a point to where you're almost cleaning it and act like you've never been there before. And then you 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 sabotage yourself. And then right? And this visualizing is convincing yourself you can do this. Yeah. That is, Essentially. It's normal It's normal for you to do that. Some type of confidence. I can do this. Yeah. And Lanny Basham talks about the way he, the way he uh, basically phrases that or words that is, quote, it's like me to clean a stage. Right. That's his. Well, yeah, like it's normal. It's normal for me to do this. It's like me. This is this is what I always do. Yeah, right. This is my thing. Is I'll clean all these stages. Yep. Are you going to clean them all? No, but you will probably get more hits by doing that than you would have had you had doubt or I mean, oh my god. I hope I get eights. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm, I'm happy with a five. Then you're probably going to get five or less. Right. You know. Um. So I mean, there's there's a lot to it, but. All of these things, it's not just, can I get still on a target? That's obviously point a part of it, and a very important part of dry fire. Yep. Um, is because if you can't get still before you pull the trigger, how do you think you're going to be able to see the impact or the miss through recoil, right? So that's obviously a big part of it, but that is not the only benefit of dry firing. Now, people who go and put who burn out four barrels a year shooting matches and training, are they getting as much out of dry fire as, say, someone like me and you or maybe someone like listening to they, this? They can't dry fire. They're spending their time reloading. Exactly. Yes. yes. Um, or even on a progressive, just just yep. you know, turning out 223. But, um, no, no, they're they're getting that all done in, in live fire, which is great. And, um, like, if you're burning four barrels out a year, you're doing a whole bunch of fucking shooting, whether it be matches, training, or the combination of both. So, um, but for the the people that aren't doing that, like the other ninety eight percent of us, then this is where all of those things get worked out and perfected. And the only thing that you got left to worry about from then is mitigating that recoil in wind. That's it. Yep. There's you're not gaining. You're literally not gaining anything out of a thousand rounds of live fire versus a thousand dry fire trigger pulls. You're not gaining anything more other than 
the mitigating the recoil and the wind. Yep. That's it. That's it. And I, I think dry, I mean, this podcast is obviously very pro dry fire. I talk about it all the time. Uh, I don't, I do it enough. I, I do it plenty. I don't do as much as I wish I would. I've done, I've done a lot of it in the last two months. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've been working on, you know, like you said, you built a new rifle and, and, and you're. I, I leave my rifle out at home. Luckily, I'm married, no kids, and my wife doesn't mind it. So in our living room is set up a barricade with my rifle sitting on. Oh, shit. Pointing out the window. Dude, I'm telling you right now, if I had that barricade right there up in my my living room, my my wife would would dismantle it. She doesn't know how to build or dis, or to dismantle anything, but she'd find a way to have that thing in 50 and, pieces. And now my wife does Snapchat. And so while she's watching her Hallmark on TV, she'll be recording her Hallmark, and I'll be off just in little ways out of screen and she'll you'll hear the the bolt rack and the trigger go then she sends it to all her friends ted's practicing again yeah everyone knows that means old psycho ted yeah psycho ted is uh you know practicing killing people let me shut that window you gotta shut the window you got critters flying in here yeah so so dry fire dry fires practice is important just break it down so you can get out of it what you need if you're a brand new shooter what i'm going to tell you is break it down and to give you an example, for 10 presses of the trigger, I want you to think about just the trigger. Get on your gun, do whatever you want, but when you pull that trigger, think about just the trigger. Think about your trigger finger, think about the trigger sear, think about when it breaks, how it breaks, did you freeze. If you're a new shooter trying to figure out what we're talking about with breaking dry fire down, just break down your trigger pull. What's that like? How did it feel? Memorize that system. Once you figure that out, then you can think about grip. Um, shoulder, you know, contact to the shoulder. What's your left hand doing? Is it on the bag? Is it on the scope? That's kind of minimizing a little bit of wobble, figuring it out. But like, so, so in this podcast, a, a brand new shooter would understand what we're talking about. One of the things they can do is just work on trigger pull and think about your trigger, feel your trigger the whole time that you're pulling through it as a dry fire practice. Yeah. And, you know, the old, old sage advice of you want to be surprised by your trigger. I'm never surprised when a trigger. I know. I know when it's going to break. That's right. You know what I'm saying? And it's the difference is is that no, you don't want to anticipate and maybe jerk or flinch, uh, and you can see that very clearly when someone someone's bolt rides over their their round of the magazine or their empty they didn't know it, and you see them flinch on the empty uh-huh. chamber. Uh, but it's you need to know your trigger well enough. And because you're waiting, you're waiting for that trigger to go and for that primer to get hit so that you can mitigate that recoil is to see what happens at the target with that bullet. So this isn't one shot, one kill shit. This is literally actually through volume. You know, this is, it's just hit, 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 look, throw that bullet down there and, and hope your wind call held up. And then if it didn't, you need to, don't throw another one in, in in the dark because you didn't see it. You know, that's the name of this game. When you're talking about competing, that's what it's all about. I mean, even hunting. Hunting too. I mean, absolutely. If I miss a deer hunting, I'd like to know what I need to do to hit it or what's put the, a second. What's the sound a bullet makes when it hits an animal? Thud. How do you know that? You can hear it. But when did you figure out you can hear it? When I got a suppressor. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I figured out you could hear it when you started watching it. 
Yeah. When I could manage to recoil and watch the, you know, watch the animal jump because the bullet hit and then you hear that thump. Like, that's when I figured it out. Well, and, and see, I've, I've shot, I've hunted a lot with a muzzle brake too. And so I, I'll, I'll take ear pro with me hunting. And in fact, my, like, not the ones, like those up there are some of my old, those, um, impact ones or whatever the green impact ones um light impacts yeah uh because i would turn them on really high so i could hear like a squirrel sounds like a fucking boone crockett buck coming through um but i i have spotted deer in thick cover that i would have never known was there had i not been able to hear them with that ear ear bro so i'm a big fan of that but i really started to I've been in the woods and heard someone else shoot somewhere near me, like some a buddy of mine that's hunting close by. I I heard that deer get hit. Yeah, I heard the thud. Yeah. And um, you know, but when I got a suppressor, I was like, holy shit! Like that is definitely loud. You're a loud, man. yeah, thwack. Yeah, it's it sounds awesome. That's one of my favorite sounds. Bullet <laughs> hitting a deer. But yeah, I agree though. Yeah, when you start watching, watching that bullet, watching for that bullet, you know that that will the timing of it will almost allow your other senses to to kind of tune in on that and zero in on that. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a big thing with with hunting, especially if you're talking about long range hunting. Now, if it's hundred hundred yards, I'm not really worried about it or whatever. But you know, I've got a ten mile an hour, twelve mile an hour crosswind here at 500 yards that i'm shooting at my house shooting a deer yeah i'm i'm definitely paying attention because there's a chance i miss that deer and i want to if i miss it i want to put a correct shot on it. if i don't miss it but don't hit it where i want to i want to make sure i can ethically put that animal down so i'll pull up we'll follow up you know and uh you know it's but then it becomes a uh, well, where did you hit them because they might be hauling ass, you know. Then good luck with a thirty mile an hour mover, you know, flying with her tail tucked. Um, but you want to know at least okay. I know that one went in the went right in the pump house. They're gonna die as soon as they quit running. Back when they get to the woods, they're gonna be dead right there. Yeah. Or like oh shit, I just shot that deer in the guts. Like I need to not go in and push i need to let that deer lie before i go in there and booger them up need, they need to die and i don't want them to go another mile because i went and jumped them up so there's so many so many things that you gain from knowing what your bullet just did and competition or hunting you're right yeah more, more than just more than just competition uh hunting is a, a, a great one um but uh Anyway, what uh, I think that covers dry fire really well because I think everyone gets a good understanding of everything that I mean, those still things we didn't cover that can be addressed in dry fire. It's it's endless. You break it down as far as you can, and then, like I said, perfect practice makes perfect. Don't practice things wrong a thousand times because then you got to do them three thousand times to break the habit. So do it do it right the first time, but. Um, yeah, we're two hours and fifteen minutes into it. You uh, you messaged me back in twenty twenty, like a couple months after I started the podcast, and you you 
said that you enjoyed the podcast and you had some questions that you wanted to ask me. I know you don't remember all of them. We talked about it. You don't remember them, but anything that you wanted to ask about, you got me. I, I remember, I remember the, one of the, the, the big questions I asked, which was how do you balance your time between long range shooting and family life or work life? That's a good question. Mostly I ask that now because all of my weekends are full. <laughs> yeah, right. As you've already Somehow burned I did, up I all did your... not balance. Right, yeah. I didn't answer it, right? Maybe it was my fault. <laughs> well, all your weekends are fucked now. Um, no, uh, well, first, I, I mentioned in the podcast I did with Dave and Brian, the Theus Saga podcast. We, we got talking about that kind of... We touched on it a little bit. To me, this is something... Shooting is very important because it's the top one or two things that I love to do for me, right? So it is important. It's not that it's not important. It doesn't matter. It does matter. And my wife knows it matters. She, she agrees it should matter, but unless I'm feeding them with it, which I'm not, not with shooting, not with this podcast, not with anything other than Southern properties, my, my company, it, it definitely cannot take precedent over that. You've literally got, no matter how much you love to do it, when you, especially not just when you're married, when you're married, but more so when you've got kids, uh, because there's, it, it, when you, more so when you have kids, you have to prioritize, like, hey, what really matters in life? Whose world am I altering or changing by going out shooting and maybe maybe winning a match? I want say I won the match this weekend. Whose world did I alter? Did I make better or make worse? Just your own. Probably didn't make anybody. I made my own better, but other than me, I probably made my better. But I may have made somebody's worse because in, while I was there winning it, I could have been here teaching something to my son that. I don't know. It could be the most, you don't ever know when those teaching moments happen. But while I was on point, my point was with kids, every moment can be a damn teaching moment. And they, there's never a time frame on them. They happen at the most crazy times. My son will say something that I don't think he understands, like how to use that term or that phrase or whatever, or, or maybe the implications of that, or he'll, and it, I'm, my examples are not coming to me, but that me that could be in the car on the way home from school, and it completely like a light bulb go off with him, and then now he he learned something, and that's the thing like like my son I'm not just trying to brag on my son, um, but he is anybody who's known him since he was very little has said that he they did not believe he was the age that he was because of how well he spoke. Not just clear. He's always been very clear. You ever seen kids, been around people's kids that the parents know exactly what they're saying, but you have no fucking idea. And they're like, oh yeah, he said he wanted macaroni and cheese in, in his you know bowl with some milk. Like, that's what you got out of that? Like, I, I, I heard blah, 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 blah. That was it. Jackson has never had that. He always articulates very well like it's amazing and i don't know how much of that is just him because he's a very smart he's very smart he's a very smart child 
Or how much was it that me and Courtney never baby talked him? Probably a lot of that. We I talked since he was a a a a toddler. I've talked to him the same way me and you're talking right now. A lot less curse curse words, but I spoke to him this way. You know, like, hey, are you hungry? Are you are you ready to get something to eat? What do you want to eat? I make him tell me what he wants to eat. No, you ain't getting that. Sorry. Be real. What do you want for you know, we're gonna come up with some real food. No, you're not getting popcorn for dinner. Because he eats about a popcorn, a bag of popcorn a night by himself. He crushes popcorn. But he uh, but I've always just spoken to him like he's my age. And maybe that that teaching thing. And then he he'll he'll drop phrases on you're like, how does he even know what that means? Like not nothing bad, but sometimes that. But no, he, he you know, he'll had well, he's just learned it. These these teaching things come at any time and you never know when something really important is going to come up in one of these stupid times like these like why are we even talking about this but i'm glad we are but nothing that i could have thought of would have brought us to this place in a conversation you just had to be there yeah just, yeah, just had yeah just had but if, if i was gone you know and I, that's you it's important to do things that make you to recharge your batteries right whether if that's fishing Sitting on a bank of a river or a pond, pulling in bluegill, or whether it's uh, gardening, or whether it's shooting like we do, whether it's golf or whatever, getting alone and reading, maybe. I wish I read more than I do. Uh, you got to charge your batteries. That way you can be the best version of yourself when you're with them. But I, I said this, and I, I know I'm stepping on toes and whatever, sue me. But that I see guys that are, they're gone. They, they shoot every, it's like they're, they're just, there's clones of themselves and they're shooting at all the matches every weekend. Like, how are you in, in Ohio and Florida at the same time shooting matches? Because I thought I saw, you know, saw that you were at both of them. They're just, they shoot everything. They go everywhere, travel. And it's like, I know you've got like two kids. Like, like what are they missing this many weekends because you're not there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. There's, you know, and I need to get better about playing with my kid because he wants to do dumb shit. And I'm like, hey, why don't we like go kick the soccer ball? Or why don't you go over here and let me teach you this or whatever? He wants to do some dumb shit like play Pokemon cards. I'm like, I don't know shit about it. I ain't playing Pokemon cards. We're going to do something that we both enjoy doing and we're going to do that together, you know? But it's, it's important to, to have... More time, I think, when you're raising a child. Now, when he's 17, 18 years old, bro, you go do you. Daddy's going to go, dad is going to go do whatever I want to do, right? Because I've don't. I raised you. You're a man now, right? What's done. <laughs> right. Unless you to come shooting with me, you know, then let's rock and roll. Or go hunting with me. Let's go. Or jump in a boat. But, um, you know, it's, uh, until then, it's, it's about, the kid or and my wife. I mean, it's we we take it. We do a lot of dates. We 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 call a babysitter, or we we go. Um, you know, we we'll get my mom. She'll keep him or whatever. Like this weekend, Jax is with with her parents. We'll do this every now and then. They're gone for the. He's gone for the weekend, and then we have a weekend for, you know, us to. You know, I'm not a good dad if me and mom. 
or jiving. Right. If we're at each other's throat, I'm doing no favor to him. So it's good for us, you know, you know, me and I, I feel lucky the fact that me and my wife have such a fucking kick ass marriage. If we fight, it's over something so dumb and then it's over in like no time at all. It's over some some piddly shit. And there's people who have real fucking problems in their marriage. Like fights I want no part of. I don't want to deal with that situation. It's to me, it's you've got to balance, okay, hey, me and you, we're gonna go do this on Saturday. And on Saturday night, we're doing this. And Sunday, we're going to be lazy all fucking day and watch movies in our sweats. And then we'll go get, I'll get Jack's on Monday. Right. We'll have that weekend plan for us or whatever. Well, let's clean the house. Like, hey, he's out of here. He's not me- making a mess as we're cleaning up. You know, let's get the house clean. Let's do that. We'll game bang it out together and do that. Um, and then when we get him, we are better parents because we just had a good time for that. Now, I'm like, hey, I'm, here's here, get your calendar out, babe. This weekend, I'm gone. Okay, yeah, we're, we're, there's nothing. There's no jiu-jitsu rank review. There's no soccer game. There's no, I'm not, birthday. he's not, yeah, birthday. Anniversary. Right, there's none of that, right? Okay, cool. All right, um, then the same weekend, the next month, I'm going to do this. Cool. All right, and then she'll say, oh, no, we got a wedding we got to go to or some shit like that. All right, guess I'm not doing that one, you know, whatever. And then I plan it out, and then it's not even a surprise. And now there are times to where, like, this past weekend, I didn't know I was shooting that match this week, this past weekend until, like, Wednesday or Thursday. And she was like, all right, I, was having pl- I had plans Friday night, um, but I'll cancel them. I want you to go shoot the match. Those are the best matches, the ones you don't know are coming. Yeah, until you're scrambling, trying to get shit done. I just got my rifle back damn Thursday from Florida, you know, having to put all that shit together and figure out if I'm going to shoot the Dasher or the or the 25 or whatever, screw them barrels on and shoot or whatever. But, yeah, I do agree. Um, but it to me, the balance is important, and how you balance it is, you know, where your heart is, that's where you're going to spend your time. I don't, I don't shoot nowhere near as much as some people do because I've put my heart, my value with them over that, right? And even that, not even just them, I've split up. There's a match the same weekend as my jiu-jitsu uh, rank review in, in a seminar with Bruno Bastos, who's a, he's a Hall of Famer. I, I have that part of my heart is, for me, the things I love to do Oh, now I'm having to choose. Do I shoot a match or do I do a rank review, hopefully get my next belt, and then learn from the one of the greatest of all time? Yeah, I'm going to go do that. I'll shoot the next match, right? Yep. So Setting priorities. Then. Setting priorities, you know. And then hopefully evenly splitting my free time, my David time, up accordingly with the amount of things that I got to do, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... It's how you set your priorities is really is up to you of, of where your priorities lie. That's about the only question I really remember. Um, the eight or nine that I sent you. So it, if it didn't, if I didn't get like 12 PMs a week, it's probably like 30 pages back. So I would, I would be able to look at it whatever. Cause they were good questions. And I should have answered them on the podcast. You did before now. You did. 
Your questions I did? Yeah. You did half a podcast on those questions. Didn't I? Yeah. Man, I don't remember half the damn podcast <laughs> I've done, bro. I don't even have remember half the guests I've had on. But uh, anyway, cool. We're an hour, we're two and a half hours into it. So you you good there? You want to? Oh, good. We got to be up about five hours. God damn it. It's almost 11 o'clock. Holy shit. I did not know that. All right. Yeah, we need to go. All right, guys. So we will uh, maybe maybe do a part two. Uh, maybe not. Uh, if if we don't record another one while Ted's here. Maybe I'll, an after action. Yeah. If not, I'll do an after action. Do a little hot wash or whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, which is luck. So it should be it should be a fun weekend. So I hope this episode helped all you guys. Um, before before I post this, I'm gonna go and find the link to uh, his Google. What's it called? A Google, Google sheet. A Google sheet. Yeah, and that way you guys have access to that. Plug your data in, and you have all of these um, awesome charts to to help um, help make you a better shooter. Um, so anyway, as always, thanks for the support guys. Thanks for the, uh, downloads and the comments. So peace.